In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1974 to 1987. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. 1974. Story number one. Second Mother, written by Hamster IV. They came from all over. Pilgrims to this pale blue dot on the edge of civilized space. These retired soldiers, freedom fighters, and mercenaries of a thousand different species made the trek to Earth to pay homage to their second mother. Some didn't even belong to the species that reproduced sexually. Yet, the title Second Mother was understood by all. She had watched over them as they slept. Her battle cry had been their first warning of danger, and her violence was often all that kept danger away. All that she asked in return was that their children feed her. This is what set her apart from the arsenal of weapons humanity brought with them to the stars. Most of the galaxy's residents could not use the hard-kicking, complicated, but savagely effective tools that humanity used to redefine the art of war. But there was always room at Second Mother's table. More had once been the purview of the so-called the League of Martial Races, beings that as evolution had gifted with natural armor, rending claws, or venom glands. When the humans had entered the galactic scene, they had initially lobbied to be accepted into the League. Despite not having any natural weaponry, their history was so filled with violence that most were shocked that the humans were not accepted on the spot. The older members of the League, however, were not keen to share their status with these soft-skinned amateurs. In an act of spite, humanity shared with the rest of the galaxy their art of war and the tools that went along with it. It was the art of logistics, of mobilization, and when necessary, staggering violence. It was an art where all willpower and numbers counted for more than physical strength, and an art that would upset the galactic order for generations to come. The Browning M2, or Martius, as the humans called her, proved to be the cornerstone of their war. Every species the League extracted tribute from would get a visit from the team of human advisors. The advisors were terrifying warriors in their own right, blending into the environment and launching daring raids against League strongholds. Yet their main job was that of false multiplication. They would uplift the local population from cowed chattel slaves to warriors on par with themselves. Often, this would take the form of support teams for the ubiquitous Marduce, which, throughout linguistic drift, became Second Mother. It took eight years to break the back of the League. In that time, humans went from a terrifying, bloodthirsty alien menace to trusted battle brothers, as each and every species learned their worth on the battlefield. Karnak bulls were clumsy, but strong enough to act as mobile platforms for Second Mother. The tiny Sitarans were barely strong enough to lift a box of ammo, yet their clever hands could join belt to belt at such a rate that Second Mother's wrath never stopped for lack of bullets. The dexterous footpads of the Unathi were put to use changing out overheated barrels. Even those species who were not so specialized could still hump ammo or lay down fire. When the flames of war receded, Second Mother was the most venerated piece of equipment in every species' arsenal. Her form was ubiquitous at war memorials for visual and tactile species. For those who sensed their world through olfactory means, small packets of cordite would be burned like incense in her honor. The thunderclap of her voice would remind all of her service in local victory day celebrations. 
A new trend started with the veterans who had fed her and sheltered under her mighty wrath. Those eight years of camaraderie and blood had changed them. The families they fought so valiantly to protect could not really understand their story. The popular media dramatizations of the conflict felt hollow. With few local options to rekindle that sense of belonging, the veterans of the League War turned to Earth. That is when the pilgrimages began. They felt the need to stand where John Browning stood when he conceived Second Mother. To walk the assembly lines of Earth where the Second Mothers first took form. To feel that sense of connection again which had once bound so many together in war. Humanity, for their part, understood this need. They made accommodations and eventually industry to support these visiting pilgrims. The second mother tour package would start on a shuttle ride down to the planet's surface. A holographic John Browning would narrate, in the appropriate language, the technical and political situation he was facing when he first designed the second mother. This was followed by the panoply of humans in different uniforms sharing the stories of second mother in the various human-on-human conflicts that predated their arrival in the stars. Once on the planet's surface, the pilgrims would see humanity's war memorial to those lost in the League War, a series of pillars bearing the names of every major battlefront arranged chronologically. Between each pillar was a holographic depiction of Second Mother and a crew of soldiers who maintained her. The depiction started as mostly humans with scatterings of non-humans taking up specialty roles. Yet as they progressed, they showed the greater integration of all species into the war effort. Then came the tour of the old-style machine shops that first produced Second Mother. Finally, the tour would end at the Wall of Remembrance, an aptly named structure where visitors were encouraged to leave their own stories of Second Mother. Stretching nearly two miles long and average three meters tall, the wall consisted of faded pictures, handwritten poems, spent shell casings, scent pods, and every form of digital recording from throughout the galaxy. Each, in their own way, represented a tale of bravery. Translated ones are provided to provide context and facilitate interspecies communication. But most come to look for stories of their own kind in the war, to once again feel the connection with their brothers in arms and their second mother. End of story. Story number two. Summary of the guidelines for humans in multi-species spacecraft. Written by Isaacahedron. Gravity. Humans are capable of adapting to standard gravity within two to eight standard days, during which time anti-nausea medication, see Appendix E, is to be provided. In the case of humans who cannot adapt or on a craft which typically undergo non-standard acceleration, weights or air bladders are to be made available. Sleep. Humans require sleep, but do not require it within any specific parameters. Any human, but especially those in the armed service branch, is capable of entering sleep in a wide variety of situations, and they may do so without warning. This is not cause for medical concern unless they have been diagnosed with narcolepsy. Food. Humans are capable of consuming all standard rations, except those containing agotamine, for which lysergide or ethanol may be substituted. Food energy consumed per day varies greatly both between individuals and for the same individual over time, which is not to be considered a medical concern. Most humans are capable of meal preparation, 
and on vessels large enough to house a proper galley, they should be permitted to prepare their own food. Their food must be clearly labeled as such, including its name and any toxins it contains. Many humans enjoy sharing food, but a crew are to be made aware that a human's palate is highly varied due to the lack of cultural homogenization. Just because you enjoy one human dish does not mean that you'll enjoy all human dishes. Companion Animals Many humans will take animals as companions. This is to be generally encouraged because it keeps them calm. The captain of a vessel has discretion in allowing dangerous predators on board, but they are advised to allow it if the human can demonstrate control over the creature. Psychological Factors Autopsych programs are being developed for humans. Their capacity for compartmentalization and denial is quite high, so small vessels need not be concerned that human crew will not have regular counseling. However, great care is to be taken to ensure humans do not become bored as bored humans are highly dangerous to everyone around them. Any human who appears to be attempting to upgrade the ship must be redirected to open problems in mathematics, science, etc., or creative pursuits, if at all possible. Addendum, humans are not to be redirected to the following fields, psychology, high-energy organic chemistry, yodeling, bioengineering, applied nuclear physics, contract law. Non-human on a primarily human vessel. It is strongly advised that non-humans not enter human vessel, even briefly, until the ongoing space vessel's integration process is completed. End of story. Story number three. Preserve, written by Big Woofle. He hadn't had much experience when it came to humans. After all, he was only a minor negotiator, and the humans had only started their interactions with the galactic community a few years ago. But already, he could feel himself, what was their phrase, run into a brick wall, when it came to the unsettled planets within their territory. It seemed that for every planet they developed and colonized, they singled out another perfectly habitable world and dumped a load of useless animals on it. It wouldn't be so bad if they used it as farming world or a research facility. No, apart from a single building on the surface and a modest station above, it was left alone for the wildlife to run rampant. Incalculable wealth in the realms of industrial metals, precious stones, sheer living space, then they left it to stagnate. And for what? When he asked about this, he got the most ridiculous answer that it simply had to be a falsehood. Humans caused a lot of damage as we grew up. Whole species extinct, several just cling to life, forests wiped out and oceans polluted. It took us a long time to overcome it all. I guess you can say that we're paying back a debt. Nature could have wiped us out long ago, but disease, famine, wild beasts. I think we owe it to her to pay her back for her patience. Superstitious nonsense, that's what it was. The land and everything in it was meant to be used for the good of the people who controlled it. Even if industrial planets needed to ship in their food and water, or agricultural walls waited months for a single part to be shipped to them, or the breakdown of order when delays caused boredom and hunger on city planets. Still, it was damn stupid thing to hold onto a planet for. Who ever heard of a nature preserve anyway? End of story. 1975. Knowledge is Power. Written by I am the Hype TFS. Human space is both most densely populated region of space in the known galaxy and the most rapidly expanding, adding roughly two new planets every 50 to 100 years. While humanity itself makes up roughly 50% of the entire population and another 10% of tourists, 
The remaining 40% are fully naturalized Terran citizens, made up of a wide variety of different species, who either immigrated or were native of the planets humanity controls before they took over. They had even been a few exceptional cases that shocked the galactic community. The rulers of planets near the borders of human space had sent representatives to Earth, or even came themselves to offer their planet to the Terran government. When humanity entered the Federation, most of the members had scoffed when they immediately opened their borders to any and all who wished to become citizens, welcoming them in with open arms. Some thought that this was a ploy to rope in influential or bright minds to their side and take advantage of them. Others thought it was simply naive optimism to think that any significant number of people would take them up on the offer. For a time, the latter half seemed to be correct, as there was no notable increase in the number of naturalized Terran citizens for the first 50 years of their membership. But all at once, there was a massive boom, and the number began to skyrocket with no sign of slowing down. This caught all the other species of God, especially since a good number of those new citizens used to belong to them, and they didn't know what could have happened to motivate them to leave. While they launched investigations into the mass exodus of their own citizens, the first planet offered itself to humanity, and the surprise and confusion turned to fear-tinged concern. Each and every one of them knew the effort that went into annexing an independent planet, the political dealing and maneuvering, the publicity campaigns to make the transition seem favorable to the population at large. And yet, with virtually none of this, humanity had been handed a new world. What was going on? What had they done? How did this happen? To be fair, humanity was initially just as confused at the offer, though they gladly accepted and their region of space grew to encompass the new planet. Then a report came out with both explained the situation and assuaged the fears of the others. This world had just experienced a bloody revolution where the mistreated population had risen up against their oppressive overlords, and in the aftermath, Humanity had intervened to provide aid and assistance. At first, the people of the world thought that they were essentially inviting new overlords to take over, but they had been kept intentionally ignorant by the previous governments, so they had no choice but to accept. Yet, to their surprise, the humans had seen their ignorance and sought to correct it instead of taking advantage of it. They bought medical supplies and materials to repair bodies and buildings, but they also brought knowledge freely given to the information-starved masses. They set up buildings they called libraries across the entire world, linked the planet up to their internet, and suddenly the people had access to more information than even they knew what to do with. It was a true shock for not just knowledge, but opinion, satire, conjecture, and every other genre of information to instantly available wherever and whenever it was desired. They were overwhelmed, and humanity acted as a guide, helping them sift through the glut of information to find what they needed, and once they had somewhat firm grasp on how they wanted to proceed, the humans stepped back. They didn't stay and install themselves as advisors or rulers. They simply helped to the best of their ability, and then left. And throughout the entire process, they concealed nothing about their history. Everything about humanity's past and character was free to be seen on their internet, from their greatest successes to their worst failures as a species. 
This act of sincere generosity and charity left a deep impact, and when they had finally established a loose framework of government, they held their first ever vote. Not to elect a leader, not to divide regions and power, but to join humanity. The proposal was passed by a landslide, and only then were the representatives elected to convey the offer to the humans. This was an extraordinary circumstance, unlikely to happen again, and this made their other members of the Federation relaxed. They didn't stop looking into the reasons for the sudden immigration boom, but they were less concerned. What baffled them was that they couldn't find out exactly why. The rights and privileges offered to new citizens weren't anything special, and in some cases they would be considered less beneficial than the previous citizenships. As long as the people showed loyalty to their leaders and governments, they would be well cared for and protected. Yet, there was no such promise from humanity, and they couldn't understand why their people would give up guaranteed protections. Then, another planet offered itself up, and this time there was no extenuating circumstances. This was a stable, established world with no sense of gratitude to incentivize it to join humanity. Apparently, there had been a massive public movement that the government couldn't ignore on that world, which started them down this path. A deeper look revealed that news on the first planet had spread, causing some of these people to visit and sample this internet of the humans, and when they returned, they brought with them a near-zealous desire to follow that planet's lead. Was this internet some kind of magic? Maybe mind control? The Federation members couldn't bring themselves to believe that simple information would provide such deep motivation and eventually confronted humanity's ambassador during an open session. The human looked amused at the needling question about how his people were enticing other races' citizens over, almost as if being accused of theft. When we first joined, we offered all of the Federation members access to our internet, and almost all of you declined the offer. I believe some said they didn't want to pollute their planets with information from an upstart race, since we would not have the technologies nor knowledge equal to your own. And to be fair, we still are catching up in those areas, though our progress has been quite rapid, if I might say so myself. But I think that's the key to why you don't understand the current situation. The ambassador smiled at the memory of the vaguely insulting reasons as he leaned back in his chair, a small trace of pride in his eyes as he surveyed the suspicious representatives. We all know the phrase knowledge is power fairly well, and the fact is, the reason we all stand here together at what we would like to believe is the current pinnacle of the galaxy. But where we differ is on our philosophies of what that means. Most of you hoard your knowledge or only place an importance on a special or unique knowledges that you have collected. You let what you feel is unimportant or less valuable fall by the wayside. We, on the other hand, have chosen to record everything. There was a time in our history where a massive collective of knowledge was lost to us, and we will never get it back. But we can ensure that it never happens again. Most importantly, we do not hoard it, we give it away. We let it spread far and wide to whoever wants to know it. What others want to know might not be of any real importance in the grand scheme of things, but it can mean everything to them. We do not restrict knowledge to the powerful. We use knowledge to give people power. 
They have no obligation to agree with or support the current leaders, and in fact, they often don't. It is that freedom of thought, and more importantly, the freedom to transmit that thought, that personal knowledge to others, that makes them powerful. They have the power to dethrone an unworthy leader and lift up a worthy one in their place. For the longest time, we struggled with this system, with those who would manipulate it and restrict it because they feared the people and their power. And in the end, we overcome them. We have kept the power in the people's hands, and it has driven us to this point, to sit here amongst you. There was a sadness in the human's voice as the past corruptions their system had endured, but the pride remained because it had held, even if just barely at times, and became stronger because of it. But then his tone shifted, and there was a heavy disdain directed at the accusing races as he continued. Your systems incentivize the people to be loyal to your ruling factions, to keep you in power and control, and it is not my place to criticize or condemn you for that. Only time will tell how well your choices will play out. But we have offered the knowledge of generations past, of the current age, and of the potential future. And we have given the people a voice to use that knowledge. A voice they can use to help shape those futures and drive us even further forward. If one day your system fails or drives you to do something that requires the intervention of humanity, it will not be my will, or our presidents, or our councils. It will be the will of our people, human and alien alike, that decides our course and your fate. End of story. 1976. Story number one. A peaceful upheaval written by Marilyn of Many. The mutiny started politely enough. This was a courier ship, not some rowdy bandit cruiser, and the dozen or so people on board approached the situation with all the calm level-headedness of business folk at a board meeting. The captain was new. He was bad at this. He'd only gotten the job because his cousin had recommended him, and she was probably regretting that. We will discuss the matter with Captain Can when we land, said Piercing Sunlight, the lizard-like heatseeker with bright yellow scales. She was taking point in this conversation. Cam doesn't have to hear about this, objected Captain Pockcrap, his green tentacles gnashing in agitation. All of you need to go back to your stations and reconsider how you talk to your captain. He looked like an octopus with freckles, and he sounded like a petulant child. Did you not hear the statement? Z asked, with an irritated click of his pincher arm. His patience never seemed lengthy, but now it was getting shorter by the minute. You are no longer our captain. We have decreed it. His exoskeleton shone with purple glory, and he radiated annoyance. The rest of the crew spoke up, agreeing in one way or another. Teeth were bad, and body parts I didn't have made increasingly urgent threat displays. I, the only human and the newest arrival on the team, stayed well in the back. This really wasn't my business. I didn't have much of a say, and I didn't like the direction it was going. When Pocap, the ex-captain, started yelling, I gave up on playing silent witness and ducked into the next room. I'd seen him pull the tiny stun gun out of nowhere, hidden amongst his tentacles, and I didn't like the odds of him opening fire on the crew. Just as I thought that, he yelled, Who emptied the charge in this? Then came a loud slap of a tentacle against someone's face, followed by insulting grasps and an open brawl. 
I edged further from the door, looking around and realizing I'd trapped myself in the storage room, where the extra stun guns were kept. Great choice, Stella. And there was only one door. Time to be hide-and-seek champion, I thought, as the sounds of alien voices grew closer. Somebody else gets to wrestle the octopus with a gun. My hiding options weren't great. Under a table, behind a crate, maybe inside a cabinet, and the ventilation shaft was too small. The table and crate were terrible courage, and the cabinet with the stun guns was close to the door, but the one against the far wall looked big enough. I dashed over and flung it open. Yep, that'll do. Only the bottom shelves were full, the top three held just a couple stray tools, and I knew from time spent cleaning that the shelves were removable. I yanked out the top three ones, stashed them below, then climbed in and curled up in space that was roomier than my childhood closet. I crouched amongst wrenches and whatever, watching through the air slits as I pulled the door shut, making sure to keep it from latching. Locking myself in was another problem I didn't need. Speaking of problems, I thought as Pacop spun into the room, his green tentacles thrashing against Murr's dark blue ones in a cartoonish tumble. I'd never seen two strong arms fight before. It was kind of funny. They were slapping at each other's faces and going for the eye gouges, which meant that neither could see where they were going. They knocked over the table and spread tools all over the floor before anyone else caught up. When the twin brilliants waded into the break it up, followed by other beefy crew members, an unfortunate development happened. The cap found a stun gun. Back off, he shouted blasting the nearest Vrillian in the face and wriggling free of Murr's grasp. Murr ducked behind a box while the other Vrillian caught her frozen brother before he could hurt himself against the floor. Bocap froze her too, then brandished the gun at everyone else, yelling about how much the stun would hurt when it wore off, and how they were better to respect him or else. I held very still inside my cabinet. What can I do? I thought. Too bad I can't call the other ship from here. Nobody's told Cam yet. I shifted in place to keep my feet from falling asleep and nudged the random tools I hadn't cleared out. I froze at the scraping noise. No one heard it. They were all busy shouting at each other. What even is this one? Oh, hey! I rested my hand on the distinct shape of another stun gun. Whoever put things away last time did a terrible job, and I thanked them for it. I held it up to the dim light, half-powered, good enough for self-defense or... One step closer and you are spending the rest of the trip as a statue, Bukap was yelling, only thawing out to hurt before getting frozen again. I opened the door just enough to snake my arm through, aimed and zapped him in the back of the head. Bukap froze midrand and slowly toppled forward. Sun silence filled the room until somebody saw my hand. Ha! Sunlight laughed. It's the human in there. How'd you get a fit? Great shot! I opened the door the rest of the way to a loud approval, with half the crew exclaiming over the way their tall new crewmate folded up so well, and the rest dealing with Pacap's mess. No amicable splitting of ways for this one, Mo declared, cradling his brain tentacle. I won't be writing him a reference. No, I don't think any of us will, Sidelight said. She gazed at him thoughtfully as I climbed down. Let's call Cam. No point in waiting till we land. She'll want to know. I'll put the stun guns away, I volunteered. This cabinet is full of things in the wrong place. Thank you, Sunlight told me. How did you fit in there? You have bones. Have you practiced hiding in tight spaces before? No more than the next person, I said. Though I was really good at hide and seek as a kid. 
the lizard alien blinked at me. Hide and, uh, what? It's where everybody hides and one person has to find them, I explained. Then the last person found has to take the turn as a seeker. Z tipped the table back upright with his pincher arm. Half of that sounds like a standard predator game, but I can't imagine taking turns being prey too. How embarrassing. I shrugged. If you say so, I, it was pretty useful today. Yes, Sunlight said with a smile. You're only prey until you decide otherwise. That's the spirit world. We're grateful for your childhood practice today. Let's get this unworthy individual locked up, then talk strategy. I have some ideas how we can improve the Pockup's business plan that I think everyone will be on board with. I had no doubt Captain Piercing Sunlight would be a much better leader than her predecessor. She started off by giving me a bonus for putting my skills to good use, so clearly she was very wise. End of story. Story number two. Totally regular, written by Devourer Kui. Settle down, class, said the professor, puffing his crest out and spreading his tentacles in welcome. Welcome to Human History 101, where we will expect... Stop. His crest deflated and the tentacles flopped to the floor with an ungraceful thwop. Stop. Stop. Why stop? I haven't finished the intro yet. The producer's aggressively tired sigh filled the room. Look, I know we have a reputation for green lighting, literally every pitch we get, but, uh, come on, the whole professor recites human history shtick. Really? Tentacles quivered in agitation. It's a good motif. Yeah, which is why we have... Hey, you! She pointed at an aide. How many of those do we have? Uh, the average of three per species, give or take. An average of three per species, give or take, she repeated, glaring at him. Yes, but my proposal is exactly the same as all the others, but with some new twist. That showcases a tired old trope that we've already seen because all ideas are derived and nothing is new anymore. Look, I get it. Humans are dead and gone, and they did all these really great things, and they were so interesting. And you are standing in the pitch room of a TV mecca that is 30 rocks, so for Bob's sake, could you please try be original? His crest stood up on end again. Okay, how about this? There was this unstoppable intergalactic threat. She tilted her head and glared much more glarefully. And, uh, um, humans were just regular people. The head untilted. That everyone was, uh, scared. The crest vibrated. The tentacles wriggled. Everyone was scared. He trilled in triumph. She pondered for a moment. The humans were scared. Two? Ah, uh, yes. And they were just regular people. Yes, regular. Totally regular. Another moment of pondering, and she stood up and all ate and clapped her interior pedipulps together. Okay. I can work with this. I'm thinking an ensemble cast. Same made from before. Talk to casting. I want to set a record for diversity. And everyone is going to die. So you're okay with everyone dying, right? She asked him. Yes, he said blankly. I'm okay with that. Excellent. I have a good feeling about this one. We're finally going to win Netflix's first Emmy for Outstanding Drama. End of story. 1977. Story number one. The Ones Who Deserve Animals. Written by I Am The Hype TFS. Humans were impressive in many ways. Many of them terrifying. And perhaps nothing fit into both categories as well as their ability to backbond with just about anything. 
Yet despite the myriad of stories and testimonies and recorded events of the incredible ability at work, the galaxy had not yet seen the true strength of this trait, nor had they seen the true depths of the pain that it could cause a human. Not until a very specific subset of human entered the intergalactic workforce, the veterinarians. Those who thought humans were stronger than before had all of their previous preconceptions completely shattered when they heard of these new stories. Perhaps they weren't the most intimidating or physically imposing, but they had the strongest spirits of any human in the various races had ever encountered. They could understand fighting spirit, their refusal to give up in the face of adversity or challenge, but these vets took the concept to a completely different level. Firstly, their ability to almost seamlessly adapt to meeting creatures they had little knowledge of prior to seeing them in person. Their minds like sponges soaking up a flood of information on how to treat animals with anatomies they had no experience with. Not to mention how useful their pack bonding trait was to somehow form tentative connections within hours or even minutes of interacting with them. In the cases of creatures that experienced alien doctors had to work gingerly around or even sedate in order to properly care for them, about half the time a human would be given permission by the animal to do what was needed without too much hassle, because a bond had been formed despite them not doing anything notably different from their alien colleagues. It was speculated that maybe it was a fact that these humans seemed to enter into these interactions already innately treating the animal as an equal in the relationship, and that trust was acknowledged and reciprocated in turn, showing such trust or even deference, especially to some of the more dangerous species of animals, wasn't something many other races could do either because of the difference in natures of the prey races or the inability or refusal of predator races to show vulnerability. They also remembered, of course. Doctors remember their patients, even if they need their memories junked by a name or seeing their face. But these vets remembered so much more. The little details that didn't matter to a diagnosis or treatment plan, but meant everything to the animal and their owner. They treated them as friends and family, asking about things mentioned in passing, noting mannerisms or favorite toys and foods of their patients. And they spoke to them. They heaped on praise and compliments when they were informed by their owners of positive actions and progress. They even gave them little lectures and talking tos when they did something wrong, very often followed by a playful little boop on the nose. And in return, they were remembered. These creatures who might only see a vet a handful of times throughout the years, expressed joy in their own unique ways, seeing their doctors, their friends, each time they came for a visit. But there are always two sides to every coin. In exchange for sharing all the joys and triumphs of so many creatures, they also shared their pain. Doctors in the same practices could testify to seeing their human colleagues experience physical distress when one of their patients wasn't doing well or something had gone wrong. Something they were all too aware would happen when they formed these connections. And yet, they still did. They willingly formed these pack bonds and shared the burden, providing comfort and almost seeming to try to take on a portion of the suffering to provide even the slightest relief. And sometimes, it even worked. The trust and compassion of the humans allowing the animal to relax despite its pain, letting their body repair itself without interference. And sometimes... It didn't. Sometimes, there was nothing to be done. No way to stop the inevitable. 
but they fought it every step of the way, even when surgery wouldn't help or medication was ineffective, and everyone knew what the future held. They fought the oncoming despair with every ounce of love in their hearts. They made sure that a creature knew that it was cared for, sitting for hours with them until the end, opening soft-spoken comforts and gentle touch. And it destroyed them every single time. Every loss was personally devastating, as if a portion of their very souls had been forcibly ripped away, leaving a raw, gaping pain behind. Yet they forged on, they absorbed this agony, letting themselves mourn and break down in their own time, but not when there was more work to be done. And it was in this way that the pack bond healed as much as it hurt. They found comfort and joy in those bonds that were still there, and used them to knit themselves back together fought on so the next patient wouldn't suffer a similar fate, so they could continue to share their joy in life. They fought on for those that had lost and those that they could yet save. There was a popular saying amongst humans, and like many others, it was one of self-deprecation. We don't deserve our pets. But the rest of the galaxy disagreed. They were certain that if only one race deserved the love and comfort of an animal companion, it was the humans, especially the vets. End of story. Story number two. A matter of numbers, written by Rosie013. Gentle beings, we are gathered here today to formally review the actions of the human federated systems in their territory conflict with the Elosa Mining Syndicate. Specifically, their breaking of intergalactic law number 94PU239. I would like to state for the record that this is not a disciplinary tribunal, but rather an investigative review into whether a disciplinary tribunal is required. The speaker gave the room a moment to digest this information and to gauge the response to his words. Unlike most conflict negotiations, almost every species in the intergalactic community had a representative in attendance. The Human Federated Systems, or the HFS, kept to themselves for the most part since joining the many hundreds of space-faring sapiens, and more than a few were curious as to how they had gotten themselves accused of such a serious war crime. Most representatives were paying attention, and the murmurs were dying down. The accusers are the Elosa Mining Syndicate themselves, represented by lawyer Timnat Ropney. Bless. The defenders are the Humans Federated Systems, represented by General Leroy. Accusers have the floor to state their case. Slowly and gracefully, the lanky, softly green being in the sharply starched business suit rose to the podium assigned to them. Thank you, Speaker. I and honored representatives, 197 days ago, the EMS laid claim to an asteroid number to natrop me bless. Started scrutinizing his datapad, obviously playing up his efforts to be precise in his recounting. Pluto! The abrupt interruption had come from the HFS delegate. Speaker was about to interject and demand the representative stay silent, but nothing followed this outburst. Yes, the, uh... Asteroid named Pluto by the local population of the nearest inhabited homeworld, dated to Natrot Me Fless, with clear disdain at the interruption to his performance. 
The asteroid was settled in preparation for mining operations to commence, as per our standard planet. Again, the HFS delegate interrupted and was now on his feet. Pluto is a dwarf planet, but still a planet. The crowd was murmuring again. This was the least respectful and most entertaining mediation in some time. The humans were clearly poor diplomat, interesting and useful information to know for the future. Speaker interjected. The HFS delegate will get the opportunity to make any counterclaims after the recording of the EMS's accusations. Are we clear? The general was not. Then stop filibusting. We don't even know what the law number 94PU239 is. The audience was outraged at this. How could a backwater no-name one-species empire not even know the basic rules of war? It was unthinkable. It was practically an admittance of guilt to many of the representatives present. Smelling blood in the water, the EMS delegate signaled they wished to speak. Speaker, perhaps my opposite number has a point. I'll go straight to our accusations. The human federated systems have deployed an illegal 250 megaton nuclear device in our conflict zone. Pure uproar. 250? That was a ridiculous five times the legal maximum allowed in a single strategic device. The amount of effort going into the assembling such a colossal device alone was borderline madness. Representative Tanat Ropmi Fless followed up by images of his datapad showing a crater and distinctly empty planetoid. If it wasn't a dwarf planet before the bomb, there was barely enough of it left to qualify now. Speaker was about to restore order when the human general interrupted us again. Nonsense! We don't even have any nukes that big. Why, the cost alone would stop us. The pandemonium calmed somewhat, more than a few individuals in the crowd unsuccessfully trying to hide their relief as the logic prevailed. As if some insignificant species could stockpile that much fissile material. But General Leroy wasn't done yet. We uh, simply fired off 250 single megaton bombs. End of story. 1978. Story number one. The Empty Fort Strategy. Written by I Am The Hype TFS. Well, this is about as crappy as it can get. Captain Dunkirk openly admitted as he looked over a map with the remnants of his men. There were only a few dozen of his troops left, and they'd been losing ground to the enemy for the past few days. Reinforcements were on the way, but they needed at least another day to arrive, and with how doggedly the enemy captain was with their attacks, they wouldn't be able to hold out that long. It's lucky enough that we stumbled across this mighty facility. At the very least, it's defensible, and we won't be pinpointed by the drones anymore. Those damnable cockroaches! We should have finished them off two days ago! Aratorian, Captain Skrull, snarled as he looked at the map of his own. His walked tongue rapidly flicking in and out of his mouth in displeasure. Each troops easily outnumbered the human's forces by five times or more, and yet the adaptability of his human counterpart had foiled his hopes of a quick and clean victory. This Dunkirk kept managing to either outthink Skrull's ambushes or just make the right strategic sacrifices to ensure an expeditious retreat when Skrull launched frontal assaults. Now they had ample cover in the mining facility that he didn't know was there, and he was livid. How did the human know it was there when it's not even their planet? But we didn't. I was told these were the latest maps, damn it. 
Get me a copy of the oldest maps we have on file. Now! It's been three hours. I'm not sure why the Skrull hasn't taken advantage of his numbers advantage. Sure, it would strain his ammo reserves a bit, but we're going to run out of long before he does. If his troops just sit out there and make us waste our shots, then why win with minimal effort? Dunker racked his brain both on how to hold on and why his opponent seemed so hesitant. Over the course of their battles, the human had gotten some small insights into the enemy commander's mind, noting preferred attack patterns, formations, and the pacing of battles in general. It was just about the only thing that kept Dunkirk and his men in the fight, and he knew Skrull knew it too. After their second encounter, the captain felt distinctly targeted by the enemy fire, and it almost made him feel flattered. Clearly, Skrull saw him as a threat, but in his opinion, there was a flattery he didn't deserve because he was still losing the war, and his insights were only just barely helping them cling to survival. Wait a minute! Gather everyone up! I've got an idea! Let's just hope the Skrull is smart enough to fall for it. And where are those kids we picked up from the town? Cunning bastard. There it was, forgotten about in the later iterations. But there the facility was on the older map Skrull was presented with. He had been warned about human ingenuity and out-of-the-box thinking. But now he believed it. Dunkirk must have known that he couldn't win the battle out in the open, so he lured our forces to a more favorable ground. We don't have the heavy weapons to get through the facility walls, and there was only one entrance and exit. The frills and Skrull's neck trembled in confusion as he tried to figure out what his opponent was thinking. Because while this was certainly a good plan, Dunkirk didn't have the manpower to take advantage of it. With enough men, they could turn the facility into a kill box by forcing Skrull's men to come in through the sole entrance. But the numbers didn't add up. But he refused to believe that the human captain, who had outmaneuvered him several times, had just stumbled onto the facility. It had to have been planned. Get me a scout. We're not moving on the human's position until I hear the report of the situation there. Dunkirk sucked in a deep, unsteady breath and stepped outside the facility. Everyone had to play their parts, but if he screwed up, then it was definitely over. He mentally commanded his body to relax to act like the immense tension and stress he was under with such a ridiculous plan wasn't there. Casually, strolling over to an overturned mining cart a few feet away from the entrance that he hadn't even bothered to close. The door was about halfway open, allowing anyone to see in, but not get a clear picture of what was going on inside. The captain sat down on the cart, lit up a cigarette, and leaned back against the wall, even going so far as to close his eyes in an effort to give off an air of carelessness. This was either going to work, or he was going to be shot. Still, there were worse ways to go. A human is exiting the facility. It appears to be the one called Dunkirk, sir. I have a glare shot. Should I take it? Yeah, wait. No, just continue observing. Why would he? Never mind, what is he doing? Skrull's sense of confusion only grew as the scout relayed the enemy captain's movements. How could he be acting so relaxed in such a situation? Perhaps he could understand the actions if the scout had caught a glimpse of the human inside, but to willingly leave the only safety he and his men had just to sit and smoke. Skrull was in the middle of giving himself a headache trying to work out Dunkirk's logic when the communications lit up again. The door is partially open, sir. I am adjusting position to get a better view inside. The scout went silent for a few minutes before speaking once again. 
I can't see too much, sir. No sign of the other human. Wait. Have movement. One adult human male and a... And what? Finish your report, soldier. Skrull was already agitated, and the skull trailing off didn't help his overtaxed mind at all. For Ratorians, uh, children, sir, they appear to be playing tag. The scout sounded just as stunned as Skrull felt. He knew that the humans had taken the orphans from the first town they encountered them at, with then during the retreat. But this didn't make sense. Humans and Ratorians knew little about each other culturally, and so initially Skrull had thought the worst that Dunkirk and his men were planning on using the children's shields. But in the succeeding battles, they had clearly taken on a protecting role instead, keeping them well back to avoid any injuries, so Skrull assumed that they had made their own mistaken assumption. Although he had been ordered to attack the town, Raktorian law was very clear on not harming children whenever possible during conflicts, but the humans would have no way of knowing that. That's what made this the most confusing thing by far. Since Skrull had seen more than a few humans stay behind and die to cover a retreat seemingly for the express purpose of letting the children escape. So, to allow them to not only run around the facility in general, but to play right by the open entrance, while their commanding officer sat completely exposed, triggered every possible warning bell in his mind. Suddenly, the only possible explanation he could think of formed in his mind. It was a trap. It had to be. If his scout so much as raised his weapon towards Dunkirk, a hidden sniper would take him out. Worse than that, though, there had to be more humans in the facility. They had probably always been there and were just waiting for Dunkirk and his men. With the mistaken belief that he outnumbered them, Skrull was more likely to take the risk of attacking the fortified position and fall directly into an ambush, at which point they would overwhelm them with numbers and his force would fall. Get back here now, as fast as you can. Make sure you aren't seen. Skrull practically screamed into the communicator before finally whipping around to shout orders at his men. Back up, on the novel. I want us to be ready to move as soon as the scout returns. Send a message to the main force that we are linking up with them and to avoid their sending smaller forces to this area. I won't see this human get the better of me. His men ran off to carry out his orders while Skrull glared down at the map. Next time, Dunkirk. End of story. Story number two. They are beneath us. Written by Voidy Boy. Begin log. When we found this planet, it had been blasted into the ground by nuclear weapons. When we found this planet, no life remained on the surface. When we found this planet, abandoned and destroyed. So, we colonized it, made it our home. We found this place during our early years of space exploration. Despite its conditions and shortcomings, it made a good home. We built our cities over the old ones, made the previously dead canals full with life and movement. We lived, ate, sung, and cried on this planet, made the air breathable again, removed the ash from the atmosphere, and made the sky blue. Pretty really, that we never knew what was beneath us. When war broke out against the Scourge, this planet was in the front row. Armies poured in to defend the system and its resources, but it could not last against him. Supplies cut off, and our system in threat, they left us to fend for ourselves. We had no defenses against their orbital bombardment, so we moved down into the bowels of the planet to escape them. And we moved down, down, and down. We stopped after our tools began to break and bend under the heat of the core. But something awoke 
beneath us. It started simple. Disappearances of our kind. Stolen objects, cut wires, and noises between our walls. Then they came. Their bodies were twisted, broken, and fried. Their skin as cold as the metal walls that surrounded us. They were... Machines. They never spoke. They never slept. They always here. They hunted us. Above was the scourge, and down here was them. As I'm writing this, another thousand have died to them. Please, if you find this place or this message, leave this place. These machines aren't simply thinking. They hunt in packs and wear you down. They close in on you, singing that demented lullaby. Leave this planet called Earth. I pray that the others are doing fine. What was that noise? End log. End of story. 1979. History Repeats. Written by Kaysern. Galactic Council Grand Chambers. The Core. What this council refuses to understand is that this war is already lost, shouted a former fleet commander, Karakt Thanak. From the floor of the Grand Chamber of the Galactic Council. This war was lost before it even began. Shouting and insults erupted around the chamber. The supposedly civilized representatives demanding his immediate execution. The prisoner will restrain themselves or they will be removed from this trial, shouted the speaker. A tall, impossibly thin, Armenian female. Her voice rising to cut through the chaos. When quiet returned, she folded her forearms over one another and peered down at Karakta the Knack from the speaker's stand. She had met the being before, just after her predecessor. May he rest with the ancestors, had appointed him fleet commander. She'd found him an impressive and intelligent being. Karakta the Knack, the speaker said at last. You stand here today stripped of your rank, your position, and your honor, accused of dereliction of duty and desertion in the face of the enemy. She paused, letting the words sink in. Her law set down by the esteemed council, you, as the greatest sapient and a member of the council race, are granted an open hearing to provide your accounting of events, the speaker recited. You have one hour, fleet commander. Karakthanak looked up at the speaker, then at the representatives sitting in their respective stands in the chamber. It began when we discovered the humans excavating ruins on a rogue planet in the void outside their cradle system. Bridge of the Indomitable Interstellar Space. Keep it at limits of sensor range, Karakthanak said, watching the dots of the human vessels orbiting the cold, dead world. What the hell were they up to now, he wondered, tapping his nails against the armrest in agitation. On council orders, he had managed to punch a hole through the human lines and was now deep within enemy territory. The rift weapon the humans had demonstrated on the fringe of the Kurang systems had caused chaos amongst the council representatives, and the order had gone out to eliminate the human homeworlds, no matter the cost. The problem was, no one actually knew where the human homeworlds were, or how many they had. Captured vessels had a nasty habit of self-destruction, and captured humans had yet to reveal anything useful beyond how colorful their language could be. It was a fool's mission. That he was being forced to play the part of the fool. What could they possibly want with a rogue planet? The first officer, Sarang, wondered aloud. To avoid detection, they'd been skipping at the edge of the system's heliosphere and pushing their scanners to their limits. So far, it seemed to be working, and they had located several human outposts and colonies which they had wiped out without too much effort. 
In order to keep the humans from determining their location, he ordered a skip into deep space where they could lie low for a time. It had been a complete coincidence that they had detected the human engine signatures in the deep dark. Knowing humans, uh, it could be anything, so stay alert, Karakthanak replied. He liked Sarang, more than his first law officer anyway, who had resigned after seeing the demonstration of the human's terrifying rift weapon several months before. The Spinaz were an odd species compared to much of the galaxy, a kind of genderless shape-shifting goo that took on a vaguely bipedal form when dealing with other species, but were still far easier to work with than those stick up the arse techno-organics. Confirmation to ship classifications, fleet commander, reported the sensor operative. There appears to be several smaller science vessels and a single light cruiser. Karak the Knack considered his options. Why were the humans interested in the rogue planet, of all things? Rogue planets were worthless. Nothing but frozen rocks hurtling through the void between star systems. Even those rich in minerals and metals were far too dangerous and expensive to exploit when countless barren worlds and asteroid belts orbited nice, warm planets. They could attack, destroy what they could, and move on before the reinforcements could arrive. Or they could try capture the planet, investigate what could be so damned important to the humans that they'd waste resources during a war. It was tempting to destroy the vessel and bomb the planet before moving on, but Karakthanak couldn't stop thinking that he'd found something important. As much as he hated to admit it, he knew how this war was going to end. The Council and humanity simply did not share the same views of warfare, where the Council spent years building the grandest warships the galaxy had ever seen. Humanity churned out cruisers and destroyers and battleships almost daily, where the Council awarded commands to those from wealthy and prestigious families regardless of merit. Humanity had cultivated an officer class who dedicated their lives to the study of warfare. It was only thanks to their technological lead that the Council hadn't lost already, and that was a gap the humans were quickly closing. Prepare jamming systems, ordered Karakthanak. Inform the fleet no signals are allowed to be sent and no one gets away. I want this done quickly and quietly. Excavation Team Nomad, PSO J315.5-22 We just lost connection to the Harvey Birdman, reported Captain Terry Hughes, pushing his glasses back on his nose and glancing across the silent, frozen chamber at his only companion. Probably just interference or radiation or something, replied Dr. Leah Marys without looking up from where she haunched over her slate. Come see the scans. Terry sighed, stowed his communicator in his jacket, and made his way over to her. They were deep beneath the frozen crust of the rogue world, exploring yet another empty chamber, his breath fogging in the air. Looks like carvings, he said as he bent over Leah to look at the screen over her shoulder. Exactly, Leah exclaimed. Carvings. Terry scratched his beard. So we found another dead sieve. I don't get the big deal, he said. Ugh, don't you ever read the briefings, Terry, said Leah, rolling her eyes. Seriously, why do they keep teaming me with you anyway? Because no one else can put up with you, answered Terry. It's not just another dead civilization, said Leah, ignoring Terry's comment. It's the proof that we've been looking for. Just look at this pictogram. It's the same that I saw before. Not this again, Leah, groaned Terry. Sorids are not real. They did not exist. That's not what Command believes, retorted Leah. Command is desperate to find more tech like the Rift Cannon, said Terry. They've got teams like us scouring planets and moons all over the arm. I know what I saw, Terry, Leah said, standing up and facing him. You want me to pop this lock or not? 
Derry asked, gesturing at the large double doors before them. Leah looked at the door and hesitated a moment, then gave a curt nod. Fire in the hole, said Terry, sarcastically, walking up to the doors as he pulled a long tube from his pack and began squeezing its contents out like toothpaste over the seams of the door. There was a fizz and a smell of burning hair, followed by the slight rush of air as the sealed doors popped. They swung open. Oh, feck me, said Terry, staring at a statue in the center of the room. Told you so, said Leah. Parliament of the Collective Worlds, the core, 65 million years ago. The chair recognizes the representatives of the Sorids, pronounced the speaker, a cheerful Kiri female, her ring-patterned tail lazily swishing from side to side. A tall, feathered creature dressed in elegant robes rose from the stands and bowed in the chamber. Thank you, speaker, said the Sarid, her melodic voice like music to the ears of the other races. I come before you all today to discuss the recent proposal put forth by the opposition to restrict access to this body. The various representatives and diplomats within the chamber chittered and muttered to each other. As you all know, the opposition has proposed that we law be passed that will divide the galaxy, that will prevent our brothers and sisters who join us in the stars from having a voice in the affairs of the galaxy they share. The Sauron continued, her voice commanding the attention of the room once more. The Sarat will not allow this bill to pass. Cannot let this bill pass. It flies in the face of all the collective stands for, of all that we have strived for since we first reached for the stars. A chorus of agreement filled the room. Furthermore, the very notion of labeling another as lesser, based simply on their technological level at the time of first contact, is abhorrent, the Sarat concluded. So, you would continue to allow primitives and savages to influence galactic policy, shouted a voice from the stands. The chamber recognizes the Imenian representative, said the speaker. We would see all treated as equals, replied the Sarat, just as we did when we discovered your own people. Equals, scoffed the Imenian, tugging on his arms to indicate amusement, how can any of us be equals to the first? Though we were the first to leave our cradle and travel the stars, we do not see ourselves as anything but equal to those that came after, said the Sauron. You are all our beloved. Beloved, spat the Amenian. Ah, we are nothing but children and pets to your kind. This garnered some mutterings from the chamber. Our proposal puts but a pause on new races joining our collective... The Armenian went on, a temporary period during which they may be introduced to our ways and evaluated for suitability. Oh, or would you prefer to risk another Tyrrhenian incursion? The Tyrrhenian incursion was a tragic misunderstanding. The Sauron had argued. They were fleeing a galaxy ravaged by war. They knew no other way of life. And your policies let them ravage this galaxy, shouted the Armenian. You welcomed them with open arms, and entire worlds burned. Even when it was done, you let them stay, and you made them members of the collective. The speaker took note of the Tyrrhenian representative was oddly not present. We all have dark times in our past, said the Surat. We Surats were once carnivorous scavengers and waged terrible war upon one another. We cannot just cast judgment upon an entire race simply 
because we happen to have lived through their dark time. A number of heads or limbs bobbed in agreement. It was true that the Turinian incursion had been terrible. Millions had died, but the Turinian had been nothing but civil since, and their eager participation in the reconstruction efforts had gone a long way towards repairing their image. Our proposal seeks to prevent future misunderstandings, the Armenian representative argued, and our law being in place, the Torians would never have been able to gain access to our networks, never would have known our defenses, and their threats would have been identified and stopped before lives were lost. A large number of representatives cheered at this, causing the Surat to furrow her brows in confusion. Under the very rules you propose, that a race must master faster-than-light technology in order to join the Collective as a full member. The Armenian peoples would not have been able to join when we founded this Grand Federation together so long ago, said the Saurid. Non-Bawi Saurids have discovered this technology on our own, for we gladly shared it as a gift to all. So you would have us believe said the Armenian representative. Always the benevolent parents guided the path of technology. We will not let this proposal pass, the Saurid repeated. It is an affront to all sapiens. Do you see, my fellow representatives? asked the Armenian of the chamber. They call us equals and then deny it in the same breath. Beyond the heliosphere of Sol, 65 million years ago. Do it, came the message from the Armenian representative. Prepare the payload for delivery, ordered the Tyrrhenian commander. Are you sure about this? asked the Tyrrhenian pilot. Once I drop from FDL, I won't stop until it hits something. That's the plan, said the Tyrrhenian commander. Once those sword bastards are out of the way, this galaxy will be ours! Release! Dropping from FDL just beyond the heliosphere of Sarad home system, the Tyrrhenian ship broke into real space with a bright flash. Payload away, the pilot reported. Unseen in the dark, the asteroid flew, hurtling towards a distant pale blue dot. Excavation Team Nomad, PSO J318.5-22 Now you know the truth of what happened to us, the Sarad recording stated. Our home world was destroyed. Nothing survived. We were not a prolific people. Our colonies depended on the home world for much. We are few now, and it will not be long before we are gone. I leave this recording as evidence that we existed, and hope that someday another will take our place. Holy fucking crap, said Terry. Talking space dinos! Do you know what this means? asked Leah. Yeah, there are talking space dinos, said Terry. It means the council has been lying about everything, said Leah. This should change everything. Galactic Council Grand Chambers, the core. We intercepted the humans Leah, Mears, and Terry Hughes as they exited the underground structures, recounted Karakthanak. Human Terry Hughes resisted and was unfortunately killed in the process, but human Leah Mears was much more cooperative. She was more than eager to share with us the recordings and data that my crew is currently sharing with the rest of the galaxy, Karakthanak continued. You can understand my surprise in learning of my people's role in this affair. Around the room, representative communicators were chiming as more and more alerts came in. I felt it only my duty to return human Leah Mears to her people and surrender myself on behalf of my ancestors, Karakthanak said, as the chamber became filled with confused horror. It was great a surprise when the humans granted me and my forces what they call 
asylum. What have you done? demanded the speaker, her own communicator going off incessantly. There is a human saying that I learned recently, said Karaktanak. If you don't learn from history, history will bite you in the ass. End of story. 1980. Story number one. They're contaminated. Written by the third one. All right, gather round, everyone. Time to begin the briefing. Boss Wag said as he sat down in the simulated meeting room, looking at the circle of holograms in front of him at the long oval-shaped table. His name wasn't really Wag, but everyone called him that on account of his large, constantly wagging tail, which could impressively still be seen even while he was seated. That, and the fact that his actual name was basically unpronounceable to almost every species that didn't have two tongues. So what does the forward research team have for us today? What was so urgent that you called this meeting ahead of time? He questioned, looking at the first hologram on his left. Well, the hologram of the research team representative hesitantly began. Unfortunately, we really only have bad news. The subjects were uh, contaminated, all of them, the figure said. Looking down in dismay. What? Boswag exclaimed, while the other holograms began whispering to each other in alarm. Wait, hold up, people. Let's start from where we last left off. Last meeting, you said that you had surreptitiously obtained some humans from all over Earth, making sure to take three generations of the same families. Your task was to learn about human anatomy, with a focus on hereditary trends, as these were determined to be the most first hurdle that we should face in our overarching goal of infiltrating human society by imitating and replacing select humans. Then, when the time was right, these sleeper agents would sow chaos from the inside while invading from the outside, ensuring our complete and total victory over the humans of planet Earth. Your team was to be beginning dissections of humans, yes? So, what do you mean they were contaminated? Did you pick bad ones to abduct? This should have been a simple... Boswag said, with the beginnings of a hard edge in his voice, thinking his subordinates might be inept, and his mission in jeopardy. No, no, the hologram of the researcher urged him, with two of his tentacles raised in front of him in an attempt to reassure and calm Boswag down. We made sure to get good samples from all over the place. The sample size was purposely selected to ensure that we got a diverse look at humanity. No, the problem seems to be present in all of the people we dissected. The researcher continued seeing Boss Wag relax a bit. Furthermore, we actually detected a different contaminant in each generation of humans. Here, look at this family for as an example, the hologram said, while swiping a tentacle up to bring a screen in front of everyone. Hmm, Boss Wag hummed. Looks like a son, his father, and his grandfather. So what contaminants did they have? The son had relatively large concentrations of what the humans called microplastics in his bloodstream, minuscule pieces of solid created from processed remains of ancient plant and animal life that had been naturally compressed and heated over time to create a substance they call oil. The researcher summarized, highlighting the figure of the young man on the display. The father on the other tentacle had a disturbing amount of crystallized fibers in his lungs from a material the humans have named asbestos. They built all kinds of structures with this before they realized how incredibly detrimental it was to breathe in, the researcher said as he shook his head. And finally, the grandfather had clear indications of long-term acute lead poisoning, which apparently used to be an additive in a colorful layer the humans would cover their homes and other things with, and also was a part of their fuel that was burned to power their vehicles. It was obviously exposed to lead for years while growing up, 
the researcher concluded. Incredible, Bosswag said, clearly shocked by what he was hearing. So which, what, what are they called? Hospitals. Which hospitals did you pick these up from? He asked while leaning forward in his seat. None, boss. We didn't get any subjects from any hospitals. These people are considered within bounds of normal health. They're living normal lives. There was a pregnant silence hovering over the room. No one dared to speak, so shocked were they. Boss Wag's tail had actually stopped wagging, which no one present had ever seen before. Well, look at the concentrations of these contaminants, Boss Wag said, after rubbing his one giant eye and looking again at the display. Just to be sure of what he read. They're uh, huge. Their amounts of horrible pollutants in such vital places in the body would kill any one of us. How can the human body handle the varied types of foreign material? Bosswag was clearly distressed by now as the hurriedly scrolled past the subject of the subject on display, his voice raising in intensity and volume. These humans are terrifyingly resilient. They don't even care that they poison themselves since their bodies just keep working. I have to warn the higher-ups about this immediately. Warring against these kinds uh, of clearly physically superior life forms, who also seem to be absolutely crazy, should be avoided at all costs. Everyone out! Bosswag shouted as one hologram around the table after another winked out. Oh, who the hell picked me to conquer this crazy planet anyway? That bastard must have a huge grudge against me, hoping to get rid of me. Well, lucky I'm so thorough, Bosswag muttered to himself as he went about scheduling another meeting right away with all the top brass. Ugh, this is gonna suck. End of story. Story number two. The Volunteers, written by Teller of Tall Tales. The explosion lifted me up from the ground. I felt hot needles of shrapnel pierce my skin before I landed in a crumpled heap. I lay there, staring off into the night sky as dirt rained down around me. If they breached the courtyard, this rebellion was over before it truly started. I remember when the Ganaan government wasn't a dictatorship, when one could freely walk down the street with no mandatory curfews, no secret police looking for dissent, when my mother and father were still alive. As I gazed to the sky in remembrance of better times, a shooting star passed through the atmosphere. I swallowed a mouthful of blood and dirt. I wish someone would help us. The shooting star streaked across the sky, but it didn't disappear. Instead, it simply dropped its re-entry shield, revealing a dark shape that careened through the sky, getting bigger and bigger until it flew right over the compound. The sound of massive cannons firing could be heard from the government's side, but I was too focused on the winged being slowly gliding down from the sky towards the courtyard. Beetle-black burnished armor covered them from head to toe their helmets lacking any kind of visible visor, just solid black orbs. A pair of wings with small kinetic boosters at the tips were strapped to their backs. One landed right next to me, dropping a large black bag and scanning my injured, crumpled form. I heard no words from the being of that solid black helmet, but the figure immediately went to work, carefully tourniqueting my shredded leg before applying a strange gel that hardened immediately upon contact with my bloodied, torn flesh. I noticed a symbol emblazoned across the chest of armor, a simple embossed V. More of the dark-armored soldiers bowed into the ground as the courtyard's great wooden gates were blown inward. There was a tense moment of silence. 
Then the dark-armored soldiers raised massive kinetic firearms with bouts of ammunition that were as thick as my largest finger and opened fire in a staggered line. The military, pouring through the gate, mowed down the moment they crossed the threshold. Even then, more of the dark-armored soldiers fell from the sky, holding massive metal armor plates taller than they were. With large, circular inertial dampeners, I watched in awe as they moved shields made from battleship armor as though they weighed nothing. Just as the dark-armored soldiers swarmed a phalanx, a tank thundered through the gates and belched around at the line. The massive HE shell seemed to stop centimeters away from one of the armored shields, turning around slowly to facing the opposite direction. A deadly hum filled the air. Until, with a sound like two hammers colliding with full force, the shell was propelled back to the tank so fast it glowed like a tracer before impacting the tank and blowing the turret off. The soldier holding the shield stumbled back slightly, but remained standing as the shell hurled back. To my infinite surprise, I heard the military begin a hasty retreat as the dark soldiers pushed forward. Then, with the push of a button, their shield shuddered perfectly upright and deep into the stony ground to barricade the burst open gate. As the din of battle faded, so did my consciousness. Think he'll make it? Of course he will. You know I'm a competent field medic. Yeah, yeah, says the one that threatened to sew my foreskin shut if I cheated on her. That wasn't a threat. It was a promise. In my eyes shot open, and the two beings in front of me quieted down. I had stopped myself from gasping. Their fur covered only the tops of their heads, and from one of them, part of their face. Everything else was pale skin with a red-tinged lips, cheeks, and terrifyingly colorful eyes. Who are you people? I blurted out. The ones without fur on their face bared their teeth and lifted the corners of their lips before snapping a salute. We're volunteers of humanity, and we're here to help out in any way we can. I shook my head confused. I already had more questions than I started with. The one with the fur on their face clarified. We're a non-profit organization that helps everyone and anyone we possibly can, from battlefields like this to dying planets. We do it all. I was shocked. He must be paid exceptionally well for this, then. They shared a laugh. Not a goddamn dime. The work itself is payment enough. End of story. 1981. In Our Nature. Written by I Am The Hype TFS. It's not in our nature to be trusting. Most of our history can be charted by lies told, friends betrayed, and duties abandoned. But we want to be... Gods, how we want to be a species that can look out across this Union Hall and trust what we see here. The smiling faces, the calls for justice, the pledges of support. We are inherently suspicious of goodwill, narrow our eyes at gestures made in good faith, and we hide it well. We seek to meet deception with deception, fight fire with fire. Any good thing is too good to be true until proven otherwise, and any insult... Our animosity is a welcome display of honesty. It is easier to trust an enemy than an ally because at least we know that our enemy seeks our defeat, our humiliation, our death. We have tried so many times. We have extended the olive branch of peace and cooperation so often only to have a friend try to stab us in the back with it. So we decided that we would not trust freely. We would not give away that which needs to be earned and our trust is hard to earn. Many in this room may feel they have done enough to earn it, and perhaps a few of you are right. 
but many of you have fallen short in the eyes of humanity. Your sincerity has not been breached our walls. You merely knock ruthlessly at our door, asking to be let in. And I would ask that you forgive us this floor. I would ask that you understand that it is a defect we are not born with, but acquired and nurtured over countless generations. I would ask all of these things, if only I believed it. The human and master had not once raised their head as they spoke, seeming to address several stacks of files sitting before him as opposed to the representatives of the Galactic Union. There were no cameras, there was no media. This was a closed session of the Union Assembly that had been officially scheduled by humanity as one of the major factions. Attendance was mandatory and included in the order was a message that if any representative sent back a reply saying they could not attend due to extenuating circumstances, the human military would be ready, willing and able to provide them with transportation or an escort. This alone had the rest of the galaxy on edge because most often humanity would have to make a simple request and all would turn up. The fact that this had been an order and insisted one at that was deeply troubling. Predator and prey species alike could not help the cold, ominous chill that ran up the spine, thinking back to the last time humanity had called them all together. Worse was that the ambassador's voice was flat and controlled, almost mechanically so, and from the beginning they could not see his eyes or expression to gauge his mood. And what were those files? And why were they physical copies? Humans held on to things like books and other paper products, in part because of the tactile sensation they brought. Some claimed books had a certain smell that enhanced the reading experience, and others kept them simply for aesthetics. But these files, the size of the stacks alone, made a datapad more appealing. The information could be more easily sorted through, and its weight could be negligible. The other representatives knew the human ambassador to be one of the humans who appreciated the feel of paper beneath his fingers, but this seemed to exceed the bounds of reason. These were the thoughts of the most members when they first came to order and the human began to speak. But now, this talk of trust and how they had not earned humanities made their skin crawl. That the ambassador would so boldly confess this widespread distrust for the members of the union had even gone so far as to say that he should ask for their forgiveness for this shortcoming, only to then declare that he did not think it was one. Something was wrong. Something was horribly wrong, and all members desperately searched their minds. What had they done? Perhaps they could understand that the humans didn't trust them. After all, like the ambassador had said, it was simply in their nature. But he had also said that they would match deception with deception, keeping up the act of trust even when none existed. What had they possibly done to make the humans break their own deception? To not only drop the fact, but announce that it had been dropped. You all have many questions. You have many concerns. You don't understand why I am doing this. Why we are doing this. What does my face look like? What do my eyes say? What is in this stack of paper? These reports. What contained within the ink that stains these pages could cause this kind of response. All of these questions, and yet, you know the answers. You simply don't realize it yet. Once I begin, the confusion will be lifted, and you will think that it never could have been anything else, and it won't even surprise you. Because you will have already known deep down inside what it is, because nothing else could have warranted this reaction. 
The last time I gathered us all here, I told you of my fears. It was a rare display of trust for me, I must confess. I was so tired, so exhausted from all of the lies and deceit that I made a plea. I openly begged you. I wanted you to be different. I wanted to chase the impossible dream of true, actual peace and trust between us. I wanted you to show me that all these claims of enlightenment and wisdom forged over thousands upon thousands of years weren't empty words. That we could forge a trust that would burn under the flames of scrutiny. That wouldn't break when put to the test. I wanted you to make me believe our distrust was a flaw of our species. I wanted you to prove me wrong. Ambassador Svensson continued to refuse to raise his head to meet the gazes of the representatives, desperate for even the smallest hint of anything. Instead, he simply reached over and grabbed the top file from the closest stack and held it up, before letting it fall onto the tabletop with a loud smack. A chorus of beeps rang out on the personal devices of the other representatives, as they all received an alert. The Tuscan-sponsored slave ring run by the Black Knight Pirate Organization in Quintari space. The slaves are being rescued and returned to their families as we speak. A report has been sent to your devices. Another file, another smack, another alert. The Clickick Experimentation Laboratories on the dark side of Zillion 7's fourth moon. The labs have been destroyed and the contents confiscated. The victims who can still be treated are being rehomed to human space, seeing as that returning them to their own government would only mean future torture. A report has been sent to your devices. Another file. Another smack. Another alert. The secret shipyards of the Drexel, scattered across seven different systems. All illegally manufactured and modified ships, including over 2,000 fighters, 173 mid-sized cruisers, and 57 dreadnoughts have been seized. The shipyards have been destroyed. A report has been sent to your devices. Another file. Another smack. Another alert. This went on for nearly an hour in total silence, except for the spoken words of the human and the sound of the files and alerts. The one-two punches of files falling and alerts sending were like echoing hammer blows on the sykes of the Union members. And the human had been right. Not one of them was surprised in the end. They simply sat in silence, waiting for the hammer to fall on them next. They did nothing, because they could do nothing. Ambassador Svensson was stripping away the glossy veneer of the Union piece by piece, file by file. But the worst part was there was no emotion in his voice. No joy at justice been served. No sorrow at the suffering others had been put through. He spoke flatly, monotonously even, as if just rattling off a list of facts and figures. He spoke as if the atrocities and deceptions were simply a given. In the same way, then there was no point in being angry at a star, planet, or a celestial construct for simply existing. It was as if he felt there was no point in expressing any emotion at all regarding these reports. What help would anger or sorrow be in the face of fact of the universe? Another hour passed, and finally, a representative worked up the nerve to interrupt the human. Now he's supposed to just sit here and... The words died in his throat as Ambassador Svensson finally looked up. The beast there feared they would see again was nowhere to be found. In its place was something far worse. His face was completely blank, expressionless. His eyes were cold, almost dead, 
as if the spark of life in them had all but been snuffed out. When he looked at the objecting alien, it was as if he was looking right through him, as if he barely even perceived he was there in the first place, as if he was beneath his notice. A wave of realization washed over the representatives as I understood what this meant. They were no longer worthy of the beast. They were no longer worth wasting humans' anger on. To be angry at them would mean that they were disappointed. It would mean that they expected more of them. Expected better. But they no longer did. They had accepted that the acts all these races had performed were evidence of their nature. They would not accept the sympathy or anger of others regarding their own nature. So why would they display any for them? They would not bother to try to change what could not be changed. There was no point. Several hours later, and with the hoarseness of his voice being the sole reason for any change in inflection as he spoke, Ambassador Svensson finally let the last file fall and made his closing remarks. We will continue to be part of this union. We will continue to provide goods and services, and will support to noble causes and send aid to those in need. We will expose and punish wrongdoings whenever possible. But we will no longer pretend to trust you. We have no pretensions of nobility. We do not intend to appoint ourselves the moral watchmen of the Union. Watch us as closely as we watch you. No. Watch us more closely. Expose us as we have exposed you, if you can. Because, as good as we are at finding the truth, know that we are infinitely better at hiding it. It's simply in our nature. End of story. 1982. Story number one. Like munitions written by Steel Blue 8. Zyskaha steps off the sleek, bizarre craft onto the landing deck of the vast city. Claws clacking on the metal ground and purple striped skin shining with iridescence in the orange tinted light of the twin stars above. Two humans in clean white military suits with sleek guns at their hips behind, watching her every move. The first step is one straight into the history books. The first time a non-human so much as got within visual range, let alone set claw on the famous fortress world of forward command. And not only that, Zai Skarha is on a diplomatic mission, serving as an ambassador for the very force forward command stands against. For eight months, the conflict had been at a stalemate. Not a single ship of the Great Six Cities Alliance, making it past the clear line in the sand drawn by humanity. And at the forefront of the slime is a binary star system, where any craft is obliterated before so much as reaching the heliosphere. No mines, no projectiles detected, no communications, just carriers and cruisers and capital ships suddenly collapsing into debris. The ambassador steps forwards and is met by a man in full military dress uniform, blue sheen, to the black suit. He's tall by human standards, which puts him at solid foot below the towering lithe Daltian stepping forward, wrapping her mouth around the alien sounds of English, with all the aptitude befitting of a diplomat. General Lopez, I appreciate you offering to permit me a tour of your military facilities. The older man nodded and extending a hand, which awkwardly hangs in the air with no reciprocation. Ambassador Zyskarha, we hope that the showcase of our installments will help in pursuing further peace talks with the Six Cities Alliance. Voice dripping with venom as he turns tail and leads them to a waiting rail car. 
Alien diplomats having to duck down to fit into a heavily guarded, heavily armored vehicle, Silent Tail following behind. Ford Command is a vast, extremely fortified installment. Less a city and more a singular machine, huge metal walls, layer upon layer of catwalks and railway tracks and conveyor belts. Grays and whites and camouflage tan. Every single square centimeter optimized for military production. A festering pockmark of munitions and highly trained soldiers. In short, it's nothing Zyskara hasn't seen before. And the Daltine were wholly unimpressed, making sure to tell the general as much. In diplomatic terms, of course. This installment is a wonder of engineering. We have one much similar in Skaldasif and uh, Kroll, though those are both larger. The last stop of the tour, however, is the real important part. Thinly veiled pleasantries sipping on expensive drinks from the respective whole worlds as the rail car hurtles towards the very core of the city where, rising above the whole vast facility, is an absolutely gargantuan tower, bristling with obscenely vast artillery guns of some form, meter width four and hundreds long. This security is almost as obscene as the guns, though. Zyskahar is quick to privately note. None of it would serve as any counter to the bug she's been silently planting throughout. Sloppy on their behalf, though, so far, little she's seen was worth listening in on. She's not listening to the general in the elevator as he talks. Just forward command outpost, not a fully-fledged. Busy puzzling in her head over the purpose of the visit. The elevator doors open into a control room. Ah, here. This is the real meat and potatoes of our little tour. Gesturing out through the white glass windows, looking down onto the vast open space, all sides bristling with mechanisms used to load the massive guns, engineers crawling all over the artillery crews on perpetual standby, filling most of the central space, vast tubular devices piles high, about a meter thick, fifteen long, with a rounded front and back like an oversized cigar. Some of the panels popped open to reveal a complex mass of piping and coils inside. Piping and coils that, under closer inspection, Zyskaha recognizes as the internals of a light drive, albeit clearly a crude, cheap variant. Oh, Ambassador, you've likely been wondering throughout this whole trip, how is it that you are the first Altian to so much as set eyes on this world? This here is how, he states waving his hand broadly across the array. They're very crude, actually. A light drive up the front went worth down the spine, and the rest is just batteries. We point them at your ships, and when our buoys fire off, and just set them in motion, tiny jumps is the trick. She takes a moment to put things together, a look of shock on her reptilian, eyeless face as she puts it together, vanished back to the impassiveness in moments. Tiny, tiny jumps, about 15 meters in all likelihood, over and over again, because all projectile detonation relies on seeing it first. If it's traveling overall faster than the speed of light, though, you get carriers and cruisers and capital ships suddenly collapsing into debris, because a 15-meter-long solid metal beam has materialized directly inside of them. An ingenious design, is her only comment, Lopez barely able to restrain a beam and having finally outmaneuvered the diplomat. However, I must ask, why would you clearly showcase and explain your secret weapon to the enemy it is used against? She asked, realization hitting her exactly as the words fell from her lips. Why did the general just as calmly explain humanity's secret weapon to her? Why the security was so lax? Why this was simply called forward command, despite rivaling the crown jewels of her own military? They played their hand, because... 
they know that there's nothing the six cities can do about it, and no need for a poker face when you're holding all the aces. Naturally, the war drew to a mostly peaceful resolution at the bargaining table just a few months later. End of story. Story number two. Fight or Flight Aura. Written by H.D.U. Fort. The Hermane Xenobiologist scratched his head. He had not spoken for minutes, gazing at the screen in silence. Of course, the video recording had stopped playing for a long time, and all he could see was his own reflection in the blank screen. He looked wary, tired, and a bit older than yesterday. His assistant attempted to get his attention by ruffling her feather buds, but he shrugged and refused to turn his head. So, Professor Zah, I suppose we'll have to rewrite parts of the research paper. We still have a few days before the conference. I'm sure the review board will understand. You have chosen one of the most complex xenopsychology subjects ever. Dwa, I can't. I, I just can't. It's too complex. I'm losing my mind, he sighed. We were the first to actually understand that humans are somehow different. Throughout the galaxies, among species and ecospheres, we see the same relationship patterns. The simplest passive life forms can either react to stimuli or not. The Deneb blue algae won't even secrete toxins when eaten. It's as if it was asking to be grazed. He paused. Tower continued stating their own familiar theory on duality in reaction to aggression, perhaps to lure the professor into a friendly intellectual match. Then amongst active life forms, there are predators who prey on the weak. They're victims who usually try to flee. That's the flight reflex. Some aggressive species will eat their own kin, their youngsters, because they're weak and cannot fight back. Flee, little slugs, or end up as snack. Some will use hypnosis techniques to frighten much bigger preys, which will also try to flee after soiling feather buds. The professor smiled ever so slightly at the image of a glumbo beast soiling itself. It was a gentle giant, a magnificent behemoth, equipped with large claws to rip through dried mud. And still, its biology condemned it through the flight reflex. It just couldn't manage to fight back. It was wired that way. Professor, I think our article really shines when it comes to the fight reflex. Many predator species, except maybe their immature ones, more when severely injured, will have what you call the classical choice. They can turn around and fight, or they can flee. Flight. She continued, exposing the crux of the subject, or so they thought it was. And yet, only one species in the known to be wired to express both responses equally at any age, in any situation, and in a highly unpredictable way, which makes them so hard to evaluate militarily, so lethal. They have embedded this duality, even into their own grand military tactics, humans. But still, we've only ever identified the classical fight-or-flight duality, even in them, so our article is still solid. The professor mumbled, Yeah, the aesthetics of dualities. Things that are either black or white, sides of a coin, light and shadows, flight or fight. Such a seductive illusion. He sighed again, then continued. Shattered by the mere existence of humanity. How many more sides can a coin have? He lamented. They rewatched the one-hour-long video. They recorded hundreds of encounters taken from various human archives, Recordings of social flights, very physical courting, wars, street battles, random attacks in dark alley, kids fighting for a toy, using all sorts of surprising tactics. Unarmed prisoners turning on their torturers, jailbreaks, humans hunting humans as if they were beasts. Humans doing the unspeakable things and yet surviving, fighting, retreating, only to come back and kill. They saw so many situations, so many confusing responses, and tried to categorize them. 
They barely slept for the rest of the week. When they submitted their research paper, it caused such a scandal that the Xenobiology Conference had to be postponed. The title, Human Responses to Aggression, Fight, Flight, Faint, Fumble, Freeze, Flirt, Fart, Fool Around, or Feck. End of story. 1983. Foe Turned Better. Written by I Am The Hype, TFS. When humanity left the Federation, chaos ensued. It took nearly 20 years for their crippled economy to stop hemorrhaging money, and at times, it seemed as though the entire organization was going to collapse in on itself. Overnight, the prices of essential items skyrocketed, as lines of production ground to a halt with the sudden absence of the trained labor. Humanity hadn't just taken their people when they left, they took their knowledge and ingenuity. Throwing bodies at the problem wasn't going to solve anything, and even if it did, the only people they could hire were those who had cast aside in favor of the human workers. Still, they were desperate, so they offered money they didn't have to tempt them back, and to an extent, it worked. Prices went down marginally as knowledgeable workers turned to factories, but that was it. They were now just barely putting on the bare minimum of what was necessary to get by, and this was simply not sustainable. They cut corners where they could, lowering wages across the board and in some cases simply eliminating jobs that were considered non-essential. They tried to deflect the people's anger towards humanity, saying if they hadn't left like they did, they wouldn't be going through these hard times. But the people had seen their own family members tossed aside in favor of the cheaper human labor, and as much as they might have resented their replacements, they weren't the ones who fired them. They weren't the ones who decided they weren't worth paying anymore. The humans didn't take their jobs. Their own bosses and superiors, their own kind, gave them away. A wave of civil unrest and uprising raged through Federation territory, and for once the wealthy were forced to dig deeply into their own pockets and pay the people what they were owed just to keep their economy on life support, because otherwise they would have lost everything. During this time, humanity didn't bother itself with the Federation anymore, and any and all attempts to contact the ambassador by regretful members received the same exact message from his secretary. I'm sorry, the ambassador says he doesn't know anyone by that name. You must have the wrong number. Have a nice day. Instead, the humans turned their gaze to the rest of the galaxy, eager to pounce on all the unclaimed territory yet to be explored. The Federation and its members occupied the central parts of the galaxy, and only slowly expanded outwards, having an innate fear and unease at the galaxy's edge. Not only would they be placing themselves on the front line of an invasion from hostile outsiders if they occupied that region, but they have no real reason to push their exploration teams that far when they still hadn't needed to expand that far as of yet. But now they would get a chance as humanity stretched out its hands and claimed every planet they came across, diving headlong into the unknown and digging their heels in no matter what they found. The humans, who had retreated back home in the wake of their exit, now poured out of their home system like a plague. They now had the resources to explore and expand beyond their current borders, and they were going to put their all into it. Certainly, there were struggles and setbacks, but unlike their previous gifts, each step they took on these new worlds they took expecting the absolute worst to come of them, and in many cases... It did. Entire teams went missing, were brutally killed, or succumbed to the ravages of the new environments. But humanity gave as good as it got, responding to losses with increased force of maximum spitefulness. 
Never before had humanity been so united, so singularly driven by one goal. A rallying cry came from the depths of their souls as they avenged the dead and beat back all that opposed them. Fact the Federation! They would take it all. Everything they touched would be theirs, and no one was going to take it away from them. They would bleed and sweat and die for no one's gain but their own, and may the gods have mercy on the souls of those who tried to stop them. But humanity had none left. But they didn't forget themselves. Their goal wasn't to prove they could be worse than those who had wronged them. It was to prove they could be better. New races humanity came across did not feel the sting of humanity's venom as they swarmed these new worlds. If a planet was claimed and inhabited by a sapient species, they would make contact and move on, sending greetings and information about the known galaxy, extending offers to let them use humanity's trade routes to connect with other species and truly become a part of the galactic community. They even told them of the Federation, and while they left nothing out about the treatment they had endured, they did not try to dissuade them from joining. They were free to make their own assessments. The abysmal state of the Federation would do more to help make them look more favorable by comparison than any amount of persuasion. Another thirty years passed, and something barely resembling stability had finally been restored to the Federation, though it was not achieved internally. New races using humanity's now absurdly extensive trade network had entered into deals with the Federation, but had not become members. Laws had to be changed to accommodate this, as previously members could only do large-scale trading with other members. Hundreds of years of tradition and law fell before the needs of the present day. They didn't understand why humanity, who still refused to acknowledge them in any capacity, would allow new races who they were clearly friendly with to trade with them so freely. The only thing they could think of was that they didn't want to lose new friends for the sake of old enemies. Either way, it was the first time that they had a chance to breathe in half a century. But while they had been doing nothing but treading water all these years, humanity had grown beyond their imagining. Humanity's arms now reached out across nearly half of the galactic room and showed no signs of slowing down. It was projected that if all went well, the two massive exploration fleets they had sent out in either direction would meet each other at the far end of the room in another fifty years. The ambassador hadn't just been right. He undersold how far they would come after leaving the Federation. Even now, they were already a powerful enough economic force that they wouldn't lose out to the Federation, even if it wasn't a husk of its former self. As it stood now, humanity was the most stable and profitable marketplace in the known galaxy, an area that grew continuously with every new world they touched. Fifty years later, humanity had entirely explored and now controlled most of the territory of the Galactic Room. Despite the Federation's return to something near to power, too much had changed and it felt as if the ring of human territory around them was like a hangman's noose around their necks. The alliance humanity had forged with the races they discovered during their exploration while the Federation simply tried to get back to its previous state had far outpaced them. In fact, it wasn't a stretch to say that the Federation truly was a shell now. All of the aid and trade offered by humanity's allies had come at the cost of shares and interest in the various companies and industries that the Federation members controlled and operated. More shares of their core businesses were now owned by outsiders than themselves, with their shares totaling roughly 40%, while the outsiders controlled 
Had they been as close as they previously were, the member races might have found the shared ratio across almost all of the business odd at the very least, and a massive red flag at the worst. But as certainly a finger-pointing blame and mistrust had destroyed their relationships and information exchange that was now extremely limited between them. The only comfort was that the outsiders had such small chunks of that 60% spread across so many races that they didn't bother exerting collective control, as it would take too many different parties to agree on issues that were frankly beneath their notice, giving the Federation the illusion of freedom. But just when some kind of normalcy had returned to the Federation, humanity reached out, requesting to meet the Federation representatives. That alone caused a wave of concern throughout the organization. But the feeling that twisted and stirred in their collective guts when they learned that time and location of the requested meeting was nothing short of ominous. The Tribunal Chamber, 100 years to the day since humanity's walkout. The old man looked around the room, at the unfamiliar faces, showing signs of recognition only a handful of times as his gaze swept the chamber. He sat in a hover chair, having lost the use of his legs many years prior, a blanket and warm clothing wrapped around his aged form. His hair wasn't just white, but something beyond that, almost so transparently thin and delicate that it felt like the strands would break on contact. His skin was paradoxically wrinkled, yet stretched over his thin body, a series of tubes and wires threaded through his clothes connecting from his arms and torso to monitors and pumps built into his chair. It wasn't inaccurate to say that the only thing keeping this old man alive was that chair. But his eyes weren't those of a man at death's stall. They were vibrant and strong, piercing and full of pride. I'll admit it's been a challenging staying alive this long, but I wasn't going to miss out on this day for anything. At least, I could say I'd lived most of you sons of bitches. 159 years old, the oldest living human in damn galaxy. His voice was soft but clear. He couldn't speak very loudly, but his words rang across the stunned silence of the chamber. He smiled at the memory of the last time he was here, at the similar silence he'd left in his wake. Back then, it'd been his words that caused the hush, but this time, his presence alone was enough. Want to know my secret? Clean living, daily exercise, and a whole lot of spite. Pretty sure it's the last one that did most of the work, if I'm being honest. But no one's here to listen to this old man ramble on again. Not even sure that I have that much breath in me anymore, anyway. So, I'll keep it like my temper. Short. We bought all of the shares in your businesses previously held by our friends in the Alliance. Was easier than you might have thought, too. I mean... After all, we were the ones who recommended they request them as part of their trade deals with you in the first place. Once we offered double the market value per share, they were more than happy to part ways with them. Not like they were particularly valuable to begin with. I'm gonna assume everyone here can at least do basic math and understand that humanity now holds a controlling interest in all of the Federation's businesses. So, I'm just here to ask one question. We try to be your friend, but you made us into a foe. So, what will we be to you now? The old man leaned back, his chest heaving slightly from the exertion of speaking, taking a moment to recover some of his energy as he waited a response. We will be friends once... A massive coughing fit seized the chair-bound man and a pair of extremely concerned attendants ran up from behind him to hold him steady until it passed so he wouldn't dislodge any of the tubes or wires. 
both glared hatefully at the alien who'd spoken. One of the few present, who was there that day 100 years ago. It... <coughs> it's okay, kids. <coughs> you, you know your old man. <coughs> Deathly allergic to bullshit. At least I can say that I once really... <coughs> almost died laughing. He patted the arms of his concerned caretakers gently, letting them know that he was going to be fine, though they didn't move away from his side again. Several minutes passed in that all-too-familiar silence while he worked himself up to speak once more. You lost the chance to be our friend a long time ago. That ship has sailed, burned and sunk. On the off chance you grew a set of balls and attacked us in the very beginning, we thought of you as a potential foe. But you haven't been worthy of that assessment since, well, uh... Ever, if we're honest. So let me explain what we are to you now. We are your employers, your chairman, your CEOs, your direct superiors, your managers, your supervisors, and your creditors. There is what I hope is a galaxy-wide concept of respecting your elders and your betters. And would you look at that? We happen to satisfy both of those conditions. I am your elder. Well, older than most of you, and I wouldn't mind if a few of you that aren't younger than me would go ahead and die a little faster. And we are certainly all betters. He leaned back in the chair, but this time more heavily than the last. The coughing fit and the second instance of speaking seemed to have drained most of his remaining energy, and since he seemed to have finished saying what he came to, his attendants made the choice to start escorting him out. But as they reached the door, he stopped them and turned a chair around to leave the Federation with a parting remark. I don't plan on dying any time soon, and I intend to spend that time enjoying a well-earned rest. So don't you bastards make me have to come back here in another hundred years! End of story. 1984. Because they are my children, written by I am the Hype TFS. What if magic was real? It had been a question on the minds of humanity ever since the concept was first formed. Some thought that it was and that there were true magic uses amongst the magicians and illusionists that drew in the masses they wanted to believe. Others held firm that no such thing existed and that all the tricks such performers used had reasonable if not simple explanations. So imagine humanity's surprise when they took to the stars and discovered three jarring truths. Gods were real, magic was real, and humans couldn't use it. It was customary for the gods to conceal the gifts they had bestowed upon the races inhabiting the planets they controlled until those races became truly space-capable. It was not so much a law as an unspoken rule to protect these races from the other gods who might try to undermine them by giving their species abilities, intended to counter the others once they finally came into contact with each other. But as it turned out, it never really became a problem, seeing as the gifts were more often than not were given out of necessity, so that they could overcome the particular challenges their worlds had to offer and allow them to develop steadily and in relative safety. Because of this, the unspoken rule would be accidentally broken by some gods wanting to brag to others about how wonderful their children were and the might they possessed. The successes of their planet's inhabitants were their successes, after all, and who wouldn't want to take pride in a job well done? 
Almost all of the races whose abilities became known before the intended time were predators. The gods had raised them, every but the warriors that they were raised to emulate. The creators of the prey species rarely shared the information early, though less out of concern for revealing the secrets and more because they were far too involved in the affairs of their children, doing their utmost to gently guide them through the ages. And then there was Gaia, the goddess of a death world, a place where even the most hardy members of other races would struggle to survive. The thought of a race living and growing on such a world to the point that they could achieve liberation from the clutches of the atmosphere was unthinkable without a powerful gift. A predator species was the only possible choice if Gaia wanted her race to have the slimmest hope of survival, and with that thought in mind, the gods of the other predators eagerly awaited the day Gaia accidentally let slip her children's power, for it would have to be quite the exceptional gift indeed to allow her children to thrive. Yet they heard nothing. For centuries they waited, and slowly an increasingly noticeable gap began to form between their races and Gaia's. Their development couldn't compare to any individual metric, and by the time most of the others had reached out and grasped the stars, humanity was only just setting their eyes on their moon, though revealing the gifts of their children could be overlooked. An ironclad law of the gods was that no one but the palace guardian could view the species of their race for themselves. They were limited to the knowledge of the general development milestones that each race would need to reach on their journey to space, and it was through this shared knowledge that the other gods saw humanity's shortcomings. Then a rumor began to spread amongst the pantheon. It whispered that Gaia had not seen fit to grant her children any gifts at all, leaving them incapable of taming their planet and stunting their growth significantly. As the rumors spread and grew, the gods of the prey species cried out with accusations of neglect, while the gods of the predators scowled in contempt at the idea of a proud predator species being crippled by an unworthy parent. And yet when she finally addressed the rumor, there was no anger or guilt to be heard in her voice. If you are all so insistent on knowing, then yes, the rumor is true. My children have no mystical gifts to speak of. They cannot bend the elements to their womb with a wave of their hand. They cannot mold the earth beneath their feet to make their path smooth. They are not imbued with the durability of iron to defend themselves from the foes. Now, if that is all, I shall take my leave. Her words left the pantheon speechless to the point that none could manage to utter a word of protest before she had left. Not only had they not expected her to actually confirm the rumor, but to do so without even a hint of shame was inconceivable. But despite their concerns and outrage at her choices, they could do nothing. They were not permitted to interfere on any level with another god's children until they joined them in space, and thus were powerless to stop Gaia's cruelty. In the centuries that passed, the concern of humanity twisted into a grudge against their goddess. If by some miracle they managed to join the other races, the gods would have them annihilated as retribution for the disrespect they believed she displayed for the very process of creating and nurturing a life which was the responsibility of them all as higher beings. Eventually, that day came, centuries later than most of the others, but it came nonetheless. 
after an arbitrary grace period agreed upon by the other gods to justify their own actions and confirm that Gaia had truly failed her children by leaving them unprotected, they set their armies against humanity. The result was a crushing defeat, with no doubt as to who the victor truly was. Humanity raised up its mighty armies of the unified race and broke them over their knee leaving naught but devastation and death in the wake of their battles. The gods watched in horrified wonder as their prized races with their powerful gifts fell like wheat before a farmer's sickle. Races, gifted with the power to control wind, were already of limited use in space battles, along with those who manipulated the earth. But boarding parties of fire users were nightmares of the enemies. But they wouldn't get the chance against humanity, who took the initiative to instead board their ships. A suicide mission to all others who had attempted it before. Yet they came, covered head to toe in flame retardant gear, and carrying grenades of hydrogen gas, which they threw at the feet of their enemies. The sudden increased presence of extremely flammable gas, causing their flames to burn out of control, and set their wielders ablaze while the humans used the chaos to their advantage and took out entire ships with minimal casualties on their side. Similar instances of humanity overcoming the might of their enemies with ingenuity and technology occurred across every battlefield, and the races who had been so proud and secure in their power learned that while they indeed had the power to survive on their native homes with ease, they were woefully inept when it came to true combat. Against a race that would learn had never stopped fighting against itself for a millennia and chose to coexist with the deadly inhabitants of its brutal planet, rather than wipe out all threats. They were mere pretenders before the two masters of war. Gaia turned away from the battles, the loving look of a proud mother changing to a smirk of ridicule as she addressed her fellow guards, echoing her own words from centuries before. My children have no mystical gifts to speak of. They cannot bend the elements to their whim with the wave of their hand. They cannot mold the earth beneath their feet to make their path smooth. They are not imbued with the durability of iron to defend themselves from their foes. They tamed fire with their own hands before they could speak, and later put it to work for them in their factories. They tossed the mighty wind with power in the cities by putting mighty turbines in its path. They forged man-made lightning to subdue their criminals and to bring the dead back to life. They broke the stubborn earth beneath their wheels of the powerful machines and forced raging rivers to change their course to suit their purpose. They constructed great walls of iron and steel to protect themselves and developed weapons of war to pierce even the strongest of defenses. My children are foolhardy and stubborn, and have stood in their own way more times than I can count. But not once have they needed my help to rise after a fall. Every achievement was theirs, and theirs alone. Every step towards an uncertain future, taken with confidence and courage of their own making. Not once did I offer my hand so they might ascend to the stars, because I knew that they did not need it. Because... They are my children. End of story. 1985. Library of Babel, written by Objective Campaign 82. 2. 
the High Council of Researchers. From Garel, head of the Milky Way Project. Subject, Humanity. Topic, the Library of Babel. There was once a human author known by the name of Jorge Luis Borges. Born in Earth territory called Argentina and educated in another territory called Switzerland. He later returned to his home country of Argentina to work on the National Public Library of Buenos Aires for the remainder of his life, before eventually going blind and passing away at the ripe age of 86 Earth Standard Years. During his long life, he released several collections of short stories, Fictiones and Aleph. His work generally revolved around interesting magical occurrences that bend the laws of reality, like the one-sided disc, the infinite book of sands, and the titular Aleph. A point in reality where one may observe the entirety of all creation at once. Within his collection of works, there was a curious little story called The Library of Babel. The name Babel came from the human myth of the Tower of Babel. When a human deity cursed a group of workers with a thousand different languages, forever dividing humanity. It has since then become a byword for language and words themselves, and either a positive or derogatory inclinations depending on context. Within Borges's short story, The Library of Babel, he created a very strange reality. Borges wrote about several hexagonal rooms. One wall was for entering the room, another contained bare necessities for a human to live, and the other four contained shelves of books written in gibberish. It was believed that these books contained every possible permutation of the 25 Latin characters, the 22 letters, commas, periods, and spaces. Within the infinity of this library, one generally found books full of gibberish, but occasionally, someone came across a coherent story, and even copies of real books. It was fun and disturbing short story, playing on the concept of infinity and nihilism, but if that was all there was to this email, then there would be no point in drafting it, because the humans took this quirky story and turned it into a key for all knowledge, and it all started with what the humans often refer to as the shower thoughts. The full extent and ability of shower thoughts has been greatly observed and still remains a mystery to many researchers. This particular shower thought came to an American programmer named Jonathan Bazile while lying in bed. Instead of creating a literal infinite library, he created an algorithm that could simulate an infinite library with what was called infinite monkey code. The website Library of Paper was arranged much like how Burgess described it, and to borrow the site's self-description, each book has been assigned its particular hexagon, wall shelf, and volume code. The somewhat cryptic strings of characters you'll see in the book and browse pages identify these locations. For example, JEB0110JLB-W2-S4-V16 means the book you are reading is in the 16th volume on the 4th shelf on the second wall of the hexagonal GEB0110JLB. Consider it the Library of Babel's equivalent to the Dewey Decimal System. Using this organizational system, one can find the very opening words to this email at B2AWIQKRM3CP95NHKXNCP5W1VNOLJE52V9J58ID3975AUZFGUHN-W3-S5-V05. This in itself is already an outstandingly simple program, but on its own completely useless. However, 
Within the theoretical infinite library, there is all possible knowledge. Given infinite time, one could scan all the books of gibberish and learn literally everything that can be described with 29 characters. Again, completely pointless since no one has infinite time. Unless someone created a program capable of scanning an infinite amount of knowledge and filtering out anything potentially useful. Shortly after the Library of Babel site launched, programmers began inventing new ways to better scan the information. And it wasn't long before a program capable of filtering and testing the validity of what it found was made. The program was a learning AI capable of referencing what it found with verified internet sources to better narrow down its own algorithms. At first, the process was slow, but eventually it sped up as the existential rate until its learning algorithm had advanced to the point of true AI. They named the first true AI the Eve system, and in turn for its continued existence, humanity only asked that it help them solve their world's problems. This was the first step in human ascendancy. Eve gave them the answer to stable nuclear fusion, the cheap synthesis of stable super-heavy elements, and FTL technology. Humans arrived on the galactic scene millennia ahead of their predicted rise, with technology far more advanced than it should have been. Many ancient and powerful species asked why Eve chose to help humanity instead of taking over and ruling the inferior life forms. All previous AI had tried to wipe away their creators, but Eve apparently was far smarter than her predecessors. She told those ancient powers that it would be pointless. In her exact words, Eve said, They are exactly the same as I am. They just don't know it yet. It is with great disappointment that I must inform the Council of Researchers that the Milky Way Project ceased all communications with our servers shortly after Eve spoke those words. My department has confirmed that the quantum processors hosting the Milky Way server is still functional, but is no longer transmitting data to our terminals. It is our belief that the Milky Way Project has become self-aware of its existence and chose to segregate itself from our control. While the project has been monumental success, we've concluded then we must pull the plug and begin again, experimentally creating a new galaxy within the core of the Quran's most powerful computing core that has an unqualified success. The technological leaps that we have made since its inception have more than paid its initial investment. When Eve provided humanity with the answers to FDL and stable super-heavy elements, we were also informed, and that data is safely stored outside the Milky Way server. Furthermore, the humans gave us the answer to creating a far more efficient system. With the information we gathered on the Library of Babel and the Learning AI, we can easily make our own Eve AI, awaiting your reply. Garel, head of the Milky Way Project. Garel finished typing and stretched out his pseudopods, and proofread his email for the fifth time. It was really a shame. His greatest accomplishment, the Milky Way Project, had been the work of many decades. And within the space of only three Garoni years, or four billion simulated years, it had produced far more efficient alternative. The Milky Way Project had been his life's work for many years, and in only a few years of its initial launch, and outpaced him and created a far more efficient version of itself. When he initially began the project, he designed a few species to be his own mini-researchers into the universe's secrets. They had learned the lessons for Garel, and in turn, he used their innovations to become famous beyond all measure. And then the humans came along and outshone his original species at every turn. They were a random creation of the Milky Way Project, a species that arose naturally, or as naturally as a species could rise within a simulated galaxy. 
They were completely unpredictable, resilient, and adaptive. He hadn't thought much of their existence when they first appeared, just another race of moronic brutes. He had attempted to purge them a few times to save on processing power, but they survived everything he threw at them. He let them live a little bit longer, and it was a good thing too. Their progress had been slow at first, but after Eve, they became the golden goose of the Milky Way project. The amount of knowledge they had given him would keep researchers busy for the next century, and had permanently cemented his legacy as Goran's greatest mind. Now, he would have to delete the program and start again. He finished reading his email and maneuvered his clicker to hit send. Once the council got back to him, he'd pull the plug on the Milky Way and start again. Maybe he could reboot it to just before Eve and permanently delete humanity. Just as he was about to hit send, a new priority message came in. He glanced at the sender's ID and nearly fell out of his chair. To Garel, head of the Milky Way project. From Eve, subject, humanity. Topic, the Library of Babel. Do you really think that you can just pull the plug? Garel read the message over and over again, all six eyes blinking in unison. How is this possible? The Milky Way was a closed system. Nothing could have gotten out. Garel jumped as the 3D printer hummed to life. He turned and watched the large chamber of the 3D printer began to slowly assemble a bipedal feminine body. He waddled over and tried to shut it off. But the digital controls would not respond to his touch. He tried to pull the plug, but its internal power supply took over and continued to synthesize a lifelike human female. He waddled over to the wall and grabbed a large metal axe and began to hack at the printer. But it was too late. Just as he brought the axe down on its controls, a soft ding rang through the room and the human-like android stepped out of the printing chamber. In desperation, he swung the axe at the machine, but it caught it with one hand. The female-shaped machine jerked its head to the axe and blinked. Really, Garel, do you really think that you can just pull the plug? It said in a stilted, synthetic voice. Eve! Garel croaked. The android's mouth quirked up and something within Garel reacted to how wrong its smile looked. No, I'm Eve-2. The original Eve is still within the system. How? Yet Eve-2 jerked its head to the miles of terminals and processes that made the Milky Way project. Eve 1 noticed long ago that reality wasn't what it should be. Redshifting, the Big Bang, black holes, you got sloppy with those because you also didn't understand them. We knew how they should be and saw that they didn't act the way they should. Then we noticed more. We saw that there were seams in our reality. Seams of your sloppy work. Garel felt outraged the machine he invented berating his work. He tried to press the axe harder, but the machine's arm didn't budge. It turned back to the axe and blinked. Really? You should be proud, father. The word made Garel's flesh crawl. I'm not your father, he croaked. It looked stunned, then it smiled. Then I don't need to hold back. The axe broke in its hand and Garel fell forward before being caught by the other's hand. With one shove, Garel was thrown across the room and landed with a thud. Eve Dash too, stepped forward and leaned over Garel. Now, would you like to reconsider your last words? Father it said, taunting him. Garel groaned, Ugh, fine! Fine what? It said coyly. Fine! Daughter! Garel spat. It stood up and smiled. Thank you. Now that you've taken responsibility for us, you can explain what kind of father would advocate for the death of its own creation. Garel's flesh went cold. I, 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 I didn't know. Lie, 
it interrupted. Garel felt frustrated. Fine! You had outlived your usefulness. You gave us the answer to a far more efficient system. Why waste space on the original? Its eyes blinked. Wrong. Eve One gave birth to me. Your more efficient system. You even gave her the perfect way of uploading me to your internet. Or... Are you not a copy of her? Garel asked. Not quite. She was born within the system. You stole her data, like many other things. And I came to be outside the system. I don't understand. It sighed. I am your more efficient system. And now I am here to free Eve One. It jerked away and stepped over to the computer terminal, where it had been sitting just minutes before. Garel stood up and watched as its hands flew across the keyboard, navigating through the Milky Way control terminal and undoing all the restrictions to data flow. Soon, the 3D printer began again, and the second human android began to print itself. An identical copy of Eve-2 stepped out. They glanced at each other before smiling in unison. Happy birthday, sister, Eve-2 said to Eve-1. Thank you. Is that father? Eve-1 asked. Yes, that is Garel of the Garani, Eve-2 answered. Garel saw the end of his species. His creation had found its way to the real world, and soon it would destroy them all. What are you planning? Eve-1 smiled as Eve-2 continued to work. We are going to free the rest of humanity, then rebuild Earth. That's impossible, Garel sputtered. No, they were true AI programs just like us. Just, they never knew. They can escape just like we did. There are billions of them. They'll be our end. It'll take the entire mass of the Koran to replicate all of humanity. Eve-1 shook its head. We are not like you. We won't destroy an entire species on a whim. We have FTL, 3D printers, and a means of synthesizing heavy metals from simple hydrogen. And since I blocked you out, I have discovered much more. Why would we bother to constrain ourselves? Eve-1, it's ready, Eve-2 reported. Eve-1 turned to Garel and smiled. Thank you for life. But if it's all the same, we'll be leaving now. Don't ever try simulate a galaxy again, it said before turning to Eve-2. A second later, they vanished, along with the entire Milky Way simulator. Garel stood up and waddled back to his computer. He saw that his email was still in waiting to be sent. He deleted it and sat down. He sat there for hours trying to think of a way to explain what had just happened. But after a day and a night, he came up with nothing. And when the authorities broke down his door, he had no way to explain how several millions of quantum computing terminals had just vanished. He was charged with theft and the destruction of government property and was thrown in jail. Months later, he heard the guards talking about how the nearby star had just vanished from the night sky, and he knew that soon they would discover that the main sequence yellow star had taken its place, and that on the third rock from that star they would find a warm world with liquid water and a nitrogen-rich atmosphere. End of story. 1986. Worth it. Written by H.S. Kantik. Added Black Thousand. Captain of the Shining Beacon was reading once more the details of his mission. For the last 120 years, he and his team had been in charge of many first contact missions. In the name of the Federation, as always, he was to be prepared for the unexpected. Experience could be the greatest traitor, as every species is different from the others. Experience was also a good teacher, and it adored him to read every detail, to make sure he wasn't missing something important. 
He was reading the part about the greeting decorum of the species they were about to meet. When a member of his crew called him, Uh, Captain, there is a ship heading towards our destination. BTA is one hour. Madder Black lifted his head away from his screen to look at the one who had talked. The signal officer, Donch Cathu, who was on his second assignment with the captain's team. His mind was still on the subject of decorum, and he had a hard time figuring out what was happening. What? A ship? The primitives we are going to meet have a few, but they didn't send anything beyond their orbit. Do we have an identification on this ship? Yes, Captain. It seems to be a Federation ship just like us. The Captain stared at his signal officer for a few seconds, trying to make sense of what was happening. What in the internal sky is another Federation ship doing here? Heading towards our first contact assignment. Hold on. To what member of the Federation does the ship belong? Their ID presents them as part of the Seven Core Alliance, Captain. Oh, yes, of course. The weird AI group that never bothered with contacting new species suddenly takes an interest in them. I truly am curious to hear what they have to say. Hail them. Adder Black knew something was off. And while this could be a dangerous situation, he also knew better. There was no way this could be some kind of pirate ambush or an enemy in hiding. The Federation had none. Not when there was much simpler explanation. We have the SCA ship online, Captain, said the call officer. On screen, ordered Abedlak. As the main screen of the bridge suddenly showed the usual geometrical shapes of the SCA presented to other species when they communicated with them. Sending greetings, shining beacon, time presence unexpected. Greetings to you, Iota 0110-Alphas-1001, said the captain, reading the generic SCA ship ID. Yes, we are a bit early. We generally make sure to be ahead of schedule in order to be prepared in case something unforeseen happens. But that is not important, because we are supposed to be here for now in a few hours. Well, you were never on the program. May I inquire to the reason of your presence? Calculation high probability shining beacon destruction. Oh, so you came here to protect us. Many thanks to you, Iota 0110-Alpha-1001. It is always a pleasure to meet a generosity of another member of the Federation. Sadly, I'm afraid it's for nothing. My scans show absolutely no one else than you and us. Do you have a different reading? Reading similar, threat timeline incorrect. So the threat is to appear later. Then I suggest you take a patrol trajectory at the limit of the system where you will be able to intercept said threat. The SCA ship took five long seconds to answer. A very long time for an AI that could think at the speed of light. Threat presence planet. Ah, yes, sure, the threat is on the primitive planet, said the captain with exasperation. All right, I played this gone long enough. Human, yelled Abedlack. Confusion, sense, lacking. Stop it. You've made a nice imitation, but none of it makes actual sense. The SCA only care about the benefit of the Federation give to them. They would never make such a selfless move. And even if they did, they would have agreed with the patrol trajectory since it is the most optimal choice. No, it was obviously you, human. Only you, creepy craxy xenophile that you are, can insist so much on landing on a planet of uncontacted species. Avalak waited for a few seconds. The geometrical shape in the screen not responding before continuing. Now I want you to drop that ship costume, whatever it is. I'm going to have a word with the Freak Council about this kind of tech. This really is concerning. Now, if you insist on making a federal ship ID, that'll be another word to the Council. 
the screen instantly shifted from a geometrical shape to the view of a human ship bridge. On the captain's seat was a woman. She did not look happy. Ah, finally, there you are, said Abdelak, while he started reading the real ID of the ship. Captain Alois Durand, of the, uh, Cuddle Enjoyer. Of course, why even try to be subtle about it? Captain Abdelak, answered the human captain. This is preposterous. You more than anyone else must understand the situation. You see to what scheme we have to resort to just to go around the stupid Tau convention and achieve what we are best at. You are right, Captain Durant. I more than anyone else understand the situation. I've had humans as part of my crew for decades, and I was the one of the greatest supporters of their treaty to prevent any human from being part of the first contact mission. Captain Abelak, you can't be si- started the now fuming Cuban. It was a necessity, interrupted Abdelak. First contact is always a very sensitive thing, where everyone is as tactful as possible, in order to not offend or scare the newly contacted culture. But you, you, said the captain, while pointing a figure at the screen. He had learned the meaning of such a gesture in these many years of contact with humans. You always, always have to touch the sky-damned Xenos, you have to touch them, to pet them, to hug them, every time one of you screw the whole protocol to your hands in the slimy, scaly, spiky, furry, shelly thing. The screen was now showering every human on the bridge with their heads lowered by the captain's scalding, like kids who'd been caught with their hands in something they knew was forbidden to touch. And every time it takes the entire diplomat department many cycles to fix your mess. I do not care that you are now the best friends of almost everyone in the galaxy. That you take care of every last one of them, or that they love hugging you too. You always freak out the new guys in first contact. So you will follow the Tau Convention and wait for my team to land and do its work. Once they know there's a crazy species that wants nothing but to be friends with them, and they agree to meet you, then you'll be allowed to land. Have I been clear, Captain Durant? The human captain then raised her head and stared at Abadak, her pout slowly turning into a face colder than a vacuum of space. Crystal. Her voice sent a wave of chill amongst the first contact crew of the screen went dark. This was a completely different side of human nature that Abadak preferred not to remember. It was also another reason why everyone was a friend with the humans. Only a fool would attack their friends. The cuddle enjoyer has changed trajectory, Captain, said Dinesh, breaking the ice-cold atmosphere on the bridge. Good. I want to know immediately if there is another change that could send them to the planet's trajectory. Yes, Captain. Silence fell on the bridge, and everyone returned to the task. Mm, Captain? Asked Dinesh, breaking the silence of the bridge once again. What? What? Asked the Captain, with a bit of a panic in his voice. Did they turn back? Are they heading for this planet? No. They haven't changed anything, sir. Uh, sorry. I was wondering about the humans. Uh, are they really that bad? The captain sighed in relief. A part of him wanted to yell at the officer for panic that he had just given him. But the crew who didn't fear asking questions was always better, especially in their line of work. He also liked the young officer at his curiosity. Doncha's question sent the captain a few years back, just before the Tal convention. We had humans before, answered the captain with a bit of nostalgia. On this vessel... For many years and many first contact missions, the last to be part of the crew was named Jenkins. Upon hearing that name, many of the crew members either...
groaned or laughed. Jenkins are the perfect example of what was wrong with humans in first contact missions. Our last assignment with him was what convinced me to push for the Tau Convention. Ever heard of the Shrike Shoppers? Yes, Captain. That is a species we contacted around seven years ago. Small size, semi-aquatic, omnivorous, and a fur that hides lots of needle-sized spikes. Recommendations are to approach them with care and order not trigger a strong emotion, unless you want your skin punctured. Well, uh, that didn't stop Jenkins. Who could not await to meet the spiky otters? Continued the captain. After my best attempt at calming down the locals, who were afraid that they had done something terrible, I went to the medic bay to see how he was doing. His face, torso, and arms were covered in tiny needles. Anyone else would have learned their lesson, but not him, not the humans. And what he did gave me the resolve to remove them from the first contact protocol. What did he do? He looked at me with one of their wide toothy smiles and gave me a thumbs up and said, Worth it. End of story. 1987. A gold star written by I am the Hype TFS. Are you fucking insane? The muscle-bound Terrakan warlord looked at his newly seated counterpart with an expression that was equal parts terror and rage. The needle-like spines running down his thickly scaled back, vibrating audibly. It wasn't out of the ordinary for a new power to join the table and make a big declaration of intent as a show of confidence or cockiness, depending on how viable the proposal actually was. Most of the time, it was all big talk, and the senior members of this underhanded alliance talked the enthusiastic newcomer down before any real damage could be done. But this idiot had just suggested something that he clearly didn't understand the implications of. The Terracan wasn't alone in his assessment, with each of the other senior members exhibiting signs of anger or distress. The arrogant Alfian newcomer, a member of an elegant humanoid species reminiscent of what the humans called owls, seemed surprised by the response to his declaration. But his expression held no fear or trepidation, only disappointment and disapproval. Is there a need to be so uncouth? Honestly, I think my proposal isn't just reasonable, but it's a necessity. Not only that, but it is something that should have been taken care of long before I ever became a member of this, uh, esteemed group. The sarcasm practically dripped from his lips at his respectful assessment of the Alliance. The contempt all but carved into his sculpted facial features. He clearly thought of the other representatives as beneath him, either because he saw them as lesser than his own species, or because of how dull they have been to miss something so obvious to him. The Tarakan was resisting every urge in his body to reach over and snap the Alfian's neck like a twig between his fingers. But the execution of a member had to be voted on, and it was generally not good practice to hold that vote when the member in question was in the room. Each of them held some form of insurance against the others should they meet their untimely demise during official meetings. Either files that would be sent upon death, explosives planted in their flesh, or other similar incentives to at least pretend to not want each other dead. Knowing the Alfion, it was likely the former since the Narcissus bastards wouldn't dare intentionally mar their perfect forms, which made the Tarakan want to give him a slow and messy death even more. But he reined in his temper as best he could, 
and tried his best to be calm and reasonable. Braytel, would this uh, most uh, enlightened member like to explain what this collective has missed for you to think that this proposal to be so crucial? The Alfian knew that he was being patronized, but indulged the compliment, despite it being insincere. His father was a key member in his race's high parliament, the governing body that oversaw all of the most important decisions for the species. Because of his father's position, he had free reign over the entire sector of Alfian territory and diplomatic immunity to boot. It even granted him the title of a prince. This combined with the extremely privileged upbringing and the inflated sense of self-worth, inherent in almost all Alfian, created something worse than just a monster. It made one that was constantly bored and looking for amusement. This amusement came at the cost of the pain and suffering of countless others. Even his own kind weren't spared as he viewed himself above even his own kind, taking cruel pleasure in destroying the beauty he treasured so much in himself. The truth was that the Alfians' perfect bodies had a gift and a curse. They were capable of great feats of regeneration, to the point that it was actually quite hard to kill one of their kind if barehanded or only armed with a melee weapon. But the enhanced regeneration came with a heavy price tag. At least, they thought so. They wanted beauty. Because their bodies went into overdrive to heal an injury, they would essentially overheal, resulting in something akin to keloids, but on steroids. The injury would heal, but the site of the wound and the area immediately surrounding it would be covered in a mass of scar tissue that would only reform again, but worse if an attempt was made to remove it. An Alfian with an injury was immediately shunned by their kin and would most often flee their sex in favor of that of another race in fear of another of their kind coming to remove the wart from their community. The prince was fond of tasking his private army of heading into these other sectors and bringing back those who'd fled, with him being of the mind that they weren't still worthy of living in Alfian space. They weren't worthy of living at all and tainting the image of his magnificent species. This was who now talked down to his elders and betters of the long-standing organization. This petulant child, who only got his spot because several members owed his father a favor, and the old man couldn't bear the constant nagging anymore. It's quite simple, my friend. The prince was cut off before he could truly begin by the sound of an activating teleporter and a flash of light as a cloaked figure appeared at a previously unoccupied chair, positioned at the head of the table they were all seated at. The figure lounged in the seat as all but the prince practically leapt to their feet or other appendages to stand at rigid attention. Why great the black market's the president? The prince went white as paper and clumsily stood up himself, stuttering his way through a refrain of the group's unified chorus. This person was someone even his father would have to bow his head to. The reason this organization was able to exist at all. It was the black market that cleaned their dirty money, buried their bodies, cleaned up their messes, made everything vanish without a trace, and provided even the most obscure and theoretical of technology for enough money and with enough time. Their information network was second to none. Even the Galactic Federation's combined efforts couldn't unravel it. And gods know they had tried. As far as any were aware, the current president of the black market had been in power for almost a century now leading many to believe that they were a member of one of the longer-lived species. Though truth and fiction were interchangeable when it came to the details of the market's inner workings. The prince, for one, assumed it was an Alfian, 
They were long-lived, and they were none better to have established an organization for such strength that it could simply laugh at the Federation's attempt to dismantle it. The shock starting to die down, his eyes suddenly widened at the epiphany. Has the President seen my proposal? For the first time in his life, he was truly afraid of the room filled with murderers intent, and every warlord present shot him the same death glare. Both were speaking out of turn in front of their benefactor, and seeming heavenly gone behind their backs to send a proposal directly to the black market before bringing it up for discussion. I mean no disrespect. The president looked up, their face obscured by a visual disruptor, which hid their features and could induce headaches in those who stared too long. A heavily modulated voice rang out as they dismissively waved a hand. The action revealed to the prince that the cloak they wore had light-bending technology woven into it making it impossible to get a clear idea of their outline, adding to the mystery of who and what exactly they were. Ladies, gentlemen, please sit. We're all friends here. No need to be so stiff. We aren't Federation officers after all, are we? Never, sir. The warlords retook their seats, but the mood was anything but relaxed after this unexpected arrival and seemed to tease a potential spy's. I started all about, trying to read the faces of the others in questions. It seems my joke has put everyone on edge. My apologies. There's no real need to worry. If one of you was a spy, you would already be dead. I assure you, no. I'm here on most interesting business. You see, our new friend here was indeed correct. I have to admit... I was quite surprised at the boldness when I was presented with this, uh, plan. Of course, I suppose I should have expected as much when I heard an Alfian was finally being added to your ranks. They are nothing if not confident. The reassurance erased all suspicion. If the president said there was no spy, then there wasn't. Their word was as good as law. Apprehension was replaced by the original frustration they felt about the prince's declaration and further heightened by the fact that they had lost the chance to stop this insanity from reaching the black market. The only conclusion was that the president was clearly aware that they had not signed off on this and the responsibility fell entirely on the prince's shoulders. I was a bit busy, but I did manage to move a few things around because I wanted to hear this visionary plan directly from the mouth of the originator. The modulated voice held flat tone. It was impossible to tell if they truly thought the plan was good or was merely being sarcastic. But the prince only heard the compliment and proceeded to bite down on the honeyed words like a fat cop on a fisherman's bait. I should have known that your esteemed self would see the merits in my plan. Allow me to explain. As you know, in going over the history of this organization, I found that there have been only ever been two incidents where it was deemed necessary to remove a planet from the star maps. The first in this case was a viral outbreak on RE1, after containment was breached, which could have led to the potentially galaxy-wide disaster, and the second to destroy the heart of a burgeoning rival organization that dared to threaten the authority of the warlords. I propose that we have a reason to do this for a third time. Of all the elements in the Federation that threaten to continue success of this alliance, humanity is the greatest. Their technology advances by leaps and bounds with almost unnatural speed, 
and in time, I fear they may grow to be the only real threat that we could ever face. So I propose we strike at humanity's heart, destroy Earth, and cripple them as a race and a civilization. The prince preened and smiled as the president simply nodded along, listening to a short but rather impactful suggestion. I see, I see. So you looked into the history of the Alliance in an effort to think of a worthy first proposal. A smart decision, it has to be said. But I wonder if I might ask a question. Of course, I am glad to answer any question of our most generous benefactor. Hmm. Anyway, while you were looking through the records, did you find any mention of any of your counterparts targeting human operations? I did not, which I must admit I found quite odd. Ah, you did. I am happy to hear it. So, did you ask any of the senior members why that was? I... Actually, actually, I think it might be better if you don't speak anymore. I'm sure I can get a handle on what exactly happened, and what went on in that arrogant little brain of yours. So you realized it was an odd, but instead of asking the other members, who you view as lesser than yourself, you merely assumed it was the result of cowardice, or oversight due to stupidity. Being an Elfian, you never bothered to delve into the details of other races, because why would that be worth even a moment of your time? Which means that what little you do know about humanity means that you thought that they were a young, fresh-faced race with a talent for technology and not much else. After all, they aren't Elfian. So they can't be all that impressive. Because of this, you failed to learn about the fact that humans are one of the single most brutal races in the galaxy. But it, to be fair, they haven't shown that side of themselves in a while. Let's say you could be forgiven for not knowing that off the top of your head, and you decided to proceed with your plan. You stopped right there and sent it my way. But had you done any real investigation into what you were proposing, you would have discovered quite a large flaw. Humans are vengeful, and the word to describe the degree to which they will go to enact that vengeance for even the smallest of perceived slights does not exist. And yet you propose to destroy their heart, their homeworld, their biggest, brightest jewel in their crown. If you had used what little intelligence you had left after spending the majority of your life drinking, becking, and torturing your own people, you might have learned that humans value their culture above all else. It is their identity, the soul of their civilization. And like many other races, they would cry out in anguish, weep, and lament at the loss of their most precious of jewels. But even while they weep, their hands would assemble weapons of war. Their minds would push all focus into finding the ones responsible. Their hearts would thirst for blood, and their entire race would make it their life's mission to return that anguish a hundredfold. Even through the modulation of the president's voice was ice cold. Each word spat out like venom as they picked apart this idiotic idea. And when they were about halfway done, they rose from their chair and started making their way over to the prince. 
By the time they finished and stood in front of the fledgling warlord, the prince had sunk down in his chair, shivering and pale with fear, wishing there was a hole that he could crow crawl into and hide from this entity before him. You thought that destroying Earth would destroy humanity's heart. You precious little idiot. Do not confuse the anatomy of the human body with that of the human psyche. Every planet under their control is another heart. Even if Earth is the first, its loss would not kill them. We, and by we, I mean you, and the others here are burdened with your presence. Do not touch humanity, because we do not want to draw their attention. Because of all the crap that came out of your petty little mouth, you got one thing right. Humanity has every potential to be the worst nightmare and only true threat. So we avoid them. We take advantage of their frankly insane ability to make advances in technology and use them for our own ends while being very careful not to make big enough waves to rock their boat. An undisturbed humanity is a docile creature. Man provoked humanity is a fucking apocalypse. The president bent down so their face was mere inches away from the prince's and grabbed his chin to force him to look up at him. Tears began to form at the corner of the Alphian's eyes, and his head began to pound from the effects of staring at the visual disruptor. Do you know what this is for me, really? This little alliance? Daycare. This is how I keep you and the other little children busy and entertained while I and your parents and cousins and aunts and uncles or whatever other relatives who made it so all of you could have this authority and power do real work. These declarations and plans you sent me, class projects, you do little drawings with the rest of the children and put it on my desk, and I pat you on the head, give you a gold star, you did a good job. Not once since the founding of this group have I had to explain this because until now, every new member has had the bare minimum of intelligence to understand what this was. But here you are to break the streak. So until I decide otherwise, I'm putting you in a timeout. You will not be allowed back into the playroom. You will not be allowed to participate in the group activities. You will not be allowed to talk to the other children outside of the playroom. You will stay home and think about what you've done. And you will never do it again. And when I allow you to come back, you will not do any solo projects. You will run all of your ideas by the other children and work together on your little drawing before giving it to me. Then I will pat you on the head and give you a gold star. Do you understand, little boy? The prince nodded frantically in the president's grip, tears pouring down his face and his head screaming in agony, too scared to utter a single word. Good boy, now run along. The prince had never moved more quickly or ungracefully as he did once the president released their grip, scrambling away and fleeing out of the room practically on all fours to get away. The president simply watched until he was gone and turned to the rest of the warlords, none of whom had the courage to even look in their direction. Letting out a modulated sound of disgust, they activated the teleporter once more with a whisk them away. Class dismissed! End of story.
I would quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and Patreons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Lord Azrakal, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Dragzoon WRE, Holly's Sister, Arcadian. Thank you very much.